Podcast. I'm Kevin Smith. Okay, kids, I do not, um, let me see, how does one put this? I'm not known for fashion, <laughs> but inarguably, I do have a style. Somebody said that to me at one point. They were like, oh, Kevin, you're not fashionable at all, but you do have a style. Um, and that made me happy. I was like, well, at the end of the day, Aren't they interchangeable? And they're not, (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. That's why when, like, the Met Gala happens and I'm always looking at shit, I'm like, I don't get it. I'll never get it because I don't understand fashion. Um, Thankfully, my kid picked whatever she understands about fashion up from my wife, her mother, or, you know, from working with stylists and stuff like that. I never did that. We had a stylist once on, like, the Chasing Amy shoot uh, me and joey were in like vogue or something like that and they brought in a stylist and they brought in you know here's a couple different outfits to choose from and it just felt so strange because i'm like well my whole thing is like i'm me this just feels like i'm really varnishing up like a fake version of myself and like so much so that like i don't know if it was vogue or cosmo like there's a a photo of me and joey and she looks dazzling because she's an actress and she used to like putting on a bunch of different dresses and fashion was kind of a thing for her. I got like my hair fucking like done up with mousse or gel or whatever the fuck. And I got like a man vest on that's like cottony with a design. Just like shit you never see me in. If you go look on the internet and you just enter like Kevin Smith, like generally you'll see me in a series of hockey jerseys, of course, and fucking long coats and or jackets that I've been wearing like since the heart attack and used to wear back in the early 90s and shit like that. Uh, the basketball shooters that I wore for a period, the fucking horrible sleeveless uh, sweat, uh, hooded sweatshirt that my wife hated, but yet fucking married me while I was not wearing it. But like during that era, she's always like, the, Kevin, if I could deal with the sleeveless fucking hooded sweatshirt, I could deal with whatever you wear. And I was like, no, you fucking married me while I was wearing that sleeveless hooded sweatshirt. So don't talk about if you could deal and shit. So. Long known that I'm not, you know, a fashion icon, but I stretch of the imagination. However, I do have a style. And uh, that style, for good or bad, you know, I, I pitched a flag and just kind of stayed there. You know, other people change and mold and, you know, what the fuck are they wearing? Like, what's her name? Chloe Sevigny, the actress. Holy fuck. I, I, maybe not so much anymore, but there was like a 10-year stretch where anytime I opened up Google News... She was in the news for wearing shit. And they were like, God, she's fashionable. And I'm not saying I disagree, but I just saw her wearing clothes. And I'm like, what? What is it that makes her fashionable? And me not. Not that I was jealous of Chloe Sevigny, but I'm like, what is fashion? What works for somebody? Because even though I've, you know, I'm 50, I've always worn what I consider to be the equivalent of street clothes. Something that generally I should have been out of. In the 90s, back when, uh, you know, fucking um, Jinko was 
you know, going like, why are we giving you so much gene? Let's hack off a lot of it and charge a double for less genes. Um, you know, that I got a theory and it's based predicated on a theory that Chris Rock once told me we were making dogma. And he was like, the music you love is the music uh, that you will listen to for the rest of your life is the music that you were listening to when you first started having sex. He's going, that will forever be your fucking music. Like, you know, you can enjoy other new things, but like your go-to is going to be like when you got fucked. And I was like, no. And then I started thinking about it over years and he was absolutely fucking right. So for me, I have always tried to dress like I did when I was, you know, 18 to 22. Because at age 22, something happened to me which made me go, oh, I'm the smart one. So I can do whatever I want. And, you know, it's not like rule the world or fucking abuse people. It's like I don't have to dress like I'm going places. I can literally fucking dress like I always do. I can wear jean shorts for the rest of my life. I can fucking wear a sleeveless uh, hooded sweatshirt. Fuck my wife. I can fucking wear hockey jerseys. I can like I have a job that enables me to not dress the way I never wanted to dress when I had jobs. Like, you know, I didn't I worked at Quick Stop because I didn't want to work at the movie theater because they made you wear a suit. So I was like, well, at least a quick stop. I can wear whatever I want. And there was a point in my life, children, where I was, I would like to think I was a little fashionable. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a store in the malls. It was urban clothing for suburban kids. Uh, and it was called Oak Tree. And I spent so much time and money there buying a lot of mustard colored clothing. A lot of mustard vests, a lot of like jackets with vests built into it. Um, you know, you see the pictures now and you're like, Jesus, he defined an error. You know, an error where it was totally okay to culturally appropriate somebody else's clothing style and wear it as your own in the Jersey suburbs. Thank God I used to go to Oak Tree because that's where I got that silent bob coat, man. The one that you see in the movies. I bought it in August of like, let's say 1989 or 90 or whatever the fuck. Going, they were like, here's our fucking summer clearance. We're getting rid of all our winter shit. And they had this fucking long coat, two colors, like green, this black in it and shit. And I was like, this is dope. And it was literally $10. Now, we've made movies for years now. And sometimes that coat has had to be replicated. And the coat I spent $10 to wear has probably been replicated to the tune of $20,000 over the course of four different fucking movies man and everyone's like can't we just change it i'm like no this is it so the clothing that i fucking got quote unquote successful in you know my career takes off with clerks what i'm wearing then that's what i'm like i'm wearing this for the rest of my fucking life man like because I, I i i did it like i said i'm gonna make a movie and then the world embraced the movie so that means they'll embrace the way i dress as well some did and then others spent a long time being like don't dress like that guy regardless after doing something for over a quarter of a century, you become known for things or known for not being good at things. <laughs> I have a lot in the latter category. One of them is, is fucking clothing. So I make no apologies for the way I dress. I make no apologies for the way that I forced my characters to dress because it's also sometimes a reflection of me. I have some of the most frustrated wardrobe people, costume designers in the business because I'm like, just make them look like they're in the 90s, would you, and shit like that. So, good news is this. You wait long enough, everything comes back around. 
So all the shit that worked in the 90s, clothes-wise, is back. And so for years, I had to take shit from people online being like, you fucking dress like you're in the 90s. And now, like, people are dressing like me, it looks like, because I never stopped dressing like the fucking 90s and shit. So that's an important lesson, kids. Like, don't change the way you look. It'll come back to you, you know, in a Coen Brothers kind of way. You pick who you are, where you're going to fucking pitch your flag, and don't move toward the city. Let the city slowly grow toward you because what you're doing is more interesting anyway. And that's kind of at the root of what we're talking about today with our guest. I was delighted. Um, God, I guess it was like last year um, to find out that uh, somebody who who makes like here, I make stuff, but, you know, my stuff is for an audience of like Kevin Smith people have been around since the fucking 90s. It's always nice when somebody who makes stuff where their fingers on the fucking pulse and they're relevant and fucking current and constantly reinventing their business and businesses have to reinvent around them because of the business that person has created. When a person like that is like, Hey, we like your shit. Um, even if it's nostalgic, even if it's like, I grew up on your shit, that's been the joy of reaching this point in my career where suddenly I meet people who are more successful than me who are like, Oh, before I became successful, I was watching your movies. That is, is thrilling. A lot has happened a lot over the course of the last 10 years where it's like, wow. And, you know, in the studio side, it's thrilling when somebody's in charge of money to give you. And they're like, I love what you, I, I used to watch mall rats when I was a kid. Here's money to make a movie. Like you're like, thank fucking God and stuff. But then outside of that world, man, you know, when we make things, generally it's us going to a place, hat in hand, and being like, would you make a thing like this? We get lucky every once in a while and have a good relationship with somebody like Funko, where like we did a pop with them, it did well, and they're like, what do you want to do next? So like we don't have to go hat in hand there and stuff. But generally speaking, if I want to make a thing, it's not like the world's banging down my door, we reach out. You know, let's say eight times out of ten, people are happy to take a meeting because they remember fondly one of the fucking movies and stuff. And then two times out of 10 people are like, we have no interest in that kind of shit, which is utterly fucking fine. It's all a long way of saying it's very rare that somebody ever just goes, Hey, we would like to do a thing with you guys. That makes you feel good. You know, especially cause you're like, Oh shit. Like the shit they do is fucking cool. And the shit they do is cool, man. We're doing a line of, of clothing, which I never thought I would fucking say, um, you know, in my life. Um, we're doing a line, kind of a View Askew, Jane, Silent Bob, Kevin Smith collection kind of thing, which, you know, don't let that horrify you. If you're listening, going, Kevin Smith collection, series of sleeveless hooded sweatshirts that nobody wants to wear, thermal inside, waffle inside, and felt on the outside. No, kids. Thankfully, we got people who know what the fuck they're doing. Um, who are going to make a bunch of clothes that that kind of uh, tee off on the looks from the movies and 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 shit that has been out there since Clerks, man. Like taking our old ISIP and making it relevant to a bunch of people, some of whom might buy this stuff and not even know who the fuck is on their shirt because they're so into. The product line, like anybody listening to this probably got to this podcast by virtue of the fact they like something I do. There are people that ardently follow the stuff I do. That happens with everybody that has an ardent following. And today's guest and his business has such an ardent fucking following that like this is a sales proposition, which as a salesman, which is one of my full time jobs, 
you know, if somebody's like, we're doing a Kevin Smith thing, you're like, okay, well, this means I've got to put aside some time to make sure I help them sell that thing because who else is going to fucking sell it if not me? I'm breathing rarefied air in this experience because it's like I can sell to my people, but like the folks that are going to be interested in this line of clothing are interested in the line of clothing that the company always makes. So we become a part of that. In essence, we're selling to their audience. And so the pressure is completely like off of me to deliver everybody. Like it's like it's it. Believe me, I don't mind hard work, but it's it's a welcome respite when somebody's like when you know. I, at one point, I was talking to Jordan, going like, "Well, we better leave aside a bunch of time for me to like post about this and fucking like rev up social media and fucking make sure that." And she's like, "You you can do all that, but like at the end of the day, they're relatively confident that like they're going to sell all the stuff with or without your help." And I was like, "I'm I'm flattered and baffled at the same time because I know how hard it is to move a Kevin Smith fucking anything, but it's going to be a lot easier." when you brand up with a company as amazing as the hundreds, man. And today we're going to talk to the guy that fucking created, co-created it was there at ground zero who created a cultural movement, who took the kind of clothing that I historically wore and has made it so fucking fashionable and fucking acceptable while still keeping it edgy and still keeping it fucking street, retaining its credibility that I am allowed to dress like a fucking teenager at age 50 and still kind of pull it off. And now you too can dress like me and the characters from my fucking flicks in a line of fucking clothing that is dazzling. Sweatshirts, t-shirts, fucking jean shorts, fucking coats, jewelry. I saw uh, for Easter, our guest posted a picture of the Buddy Christ like fucking pendant, man, like on a chain like where I was like, God, this is amazing. Like who, who the fuck would have thought this and shit. Um, but that all happens because of our guests today, man. And we were just having the discussion about how to introduce them, which I'll throw in here before we started, man. But, uh, we're going to introduce them by the name that most cats will make, might recognize, but throughout the show, we're going to use all his names. <laughs> <laughs> all of them you know how to like god there's god and yahweh elohim adonai a lot of different names our guest today's got a bunch of those fucking names give it up for bobby hundreds how are you sir all right i'm good i'm i love that he drew the direct comparison between me and god yes <laughs> same thing he's yeah. the god of of judgy religions you're the god of streetwear for heaven's sakes um, also very much a judgy re religion in itself <laughs> It is, isn't it? It is. It's a culture in a world that a lot of people. Yeah. Well, here, let's start here. How, when you started, mm -hmm. which is coming up on 20 years, right? Like mm -hmm. 2003. Yeah, we're in 2003, so we're in our 18th year, essentially. Coming yeah. up on fucking two decades. All right, so wait, yeah. we'll start at the beginning. Where You grew up out here? I grew up in Riverside. Because the clothing definitely has a West Coast feel. It's a very West Coast brand. It's a very distinctly West Coast streetwear brand. And especially the type of the West Coast that I grew up in, which wasn't in the city proper. I grew up in the suburbs of Riverside and then San Diego. And I've been here in L.A. for 20 years now. So but Riverside, like... Um for the for the East Coasters out there, if, yeah. If Los Angeles is Manhattan, okay. Where did you grow up? I I guess that's like Connecticut. Really? I, I, it's like Jersey. 
Well, I guess, go back to Connecticut, man. Let's go to, let's go to Connecticut. <laughs> that sounds a little judgy. You're right. Streetwear is a religion. <laughs> um, so it wasn't. So it yeah. wasn't like you were like where it's fucking happening. No, not but at all. You're adjacent to where it's happening. Yes, of course. Like and we so could the, drive into the city and experience the city, but where I grew up, I just you know where, when you grow up in a certain town, you think the entire world is like that. Oh, it's common that you know. Um, there's acid rain whenever it storms and you can't leave your basketball outside because it'll literally corrode. Or uh, we used to call it brown town because the air was brown and the people are brown and there's just dirt everywhere and there's smog. And so um, I thought the whole world was like that. I thought the whole world when it was summer, it was 117 degrees every day like it was. And us skating. In Isn't that, that's location bias, East. right? Like Totally. I still do that. Almost yeah. daily. Here, pull your mic closer to, yeah. to your mouth. Um, I still do that almost daily. And we were having a conversation before this. And I yeah. Was, and it's all, all my facts are predicated on yeah. shit that happened 50 years ago in, uh, yeah. in one corner of the world. So I'm like, well, everyone remembers when this <laughs> yeah. happened. And a lot of people are like, I, I have no recollection of that. Even whatsoever. when we're designing apparel and designing collections, we, Ben and I'm, Ben is my partner who mm. I co founded the brand with. He's my age as well. And we always think of summer as, oh, it starts getting really hot in June. Right. And uh, by September, it's cold and you need a jacket. That is that at, that's Riverside? That's, that's You've just described New Jersey as well. Yeah. But I think that's also just what the climate was in the 80s right. and the 90s. And now when we're building out collections, everyone's like, what are you talking about? It's still relatively cool in June. It doesn't really get hot till September. Right. Because the cli- the seasons have shifted so much. If you think about it, like November, it's like really warm now. Yeah. And so we're trying to sell these puffer coats when like we should be trying to sell that in March. You know what I mean? Like it has the, shifted. Everything's shifted so much. And but I still think of summer as, oh, school gets out in June. So it turns hot. But it's not that with June is June gloom. And, and that's generational bias. That's generational bias. Because you're like, yeah. My world is. And yeah. It's like your world. It's gone, old man. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there are no more seasons. Yeah. No more holidays. It's just one long living hell. Of heat. Uh, maybe it's different for young people today because they're so wired into their social platforms and they're interconnected with people around the world so they get a better idea of what life is like everywhere else um but there was something charming about growing up and thinking that everything was just how you're but that was also what was cool right like you could travel like 20 minutes up the road and they would have a completely different sense of fashion and different musical interests um you know you go into the city and they and they operated and spoke a different way but now, because everyone's on the same page, metaphorically, you know, on the same social media page, it's like everyone talks the same, everyone listens to the same music, they dress the same now. There's that like was, none, was, none of that nuance. It's a, it's a, when Prince, um, and I'm name dropping like a motherfucker, when Prince. <laughs> That's a good one to name drop. Yeah, you know, legend. <laughs> he, uh, iconic Prince. When he was, uh, we did this documentary years ago that still hasn't come out, but the footage is part of the vault that they opened wow. up and I was, I heard it might be a part of the Netflix like bio that they're doing of him and stuff. But anyway, when I was um, shooting the footage, he had released this album called the rainbow children and he had a listening party at um, Paisley park. And um, so when he, when we did the listening party, we 
he asked me, he'd seen Dogma, and he's like, I want to shoot a documentary. He said, Jesus is Lord and stuff. I was like, well, we just made that movie. And he's like, we're, <laughs> we're going to, I'm going to have you shoot everyone. And basically what it came down to was people will listen to the album, and then I would talk to them in like a kind of focus group setting yeah. about it. And he wasn't involved, but then he bombed in and surprised people and fucking then would take part of the discussion. It, it, I'm, like, what? I'm telling you, it was magical. And it's crazy that like this happened 21 years ago. But I've, you know, I, I grew up listening to Prince. I saw all the interviews, read all the interviews. He was a very private dude. Yeah. This footage is nuts because it is him in storyteller mode, in preacher mode. Like where he's just like opening huh. up because he'd become a Jehovah's Witness. So essentially everything was kind of about converting folks in the room. But to go back to the original point, he said, and now I'm forgetting after all that fucking setup. Hold on. I just had the point and then I fucking, <laughs> I smoked it away because there was so much fucking preamble. Oh, he said, when I was a kid, you would drive from Minneapolis to yeah. Chicago and it would be completely different music. You drive from Chicago yes. to to uh, Cleveland or Pittsburgh, completely different music. Mm -hmm. To New York, completely different music. And he his complaint was then modern radio, which was this was in like two thousand and one, um, was killing that by having multiple mm. stations owned by the same company because then the playlist was the same from coast to coast. If yeah. you go to Chicago, they don't have a separate fucking like here's what's hot here it's just here's what's hot wherever you fucking go. yeah and he was lamenting the essentially homogenization of you know different pockets of musical culture yeah across the american map and i remember at the time he said it went right over my fucking head but like he now saw that he's he was absolutely fucking right yeah and you're right i hadn't thought about it social media is the great equalizer yeah where it's like you can't do something new and cool in a corner of the world that isn't like, think about it. People that did shit that we emulated as kids or wanted to be like, they didn't do it to be cool. They just did it because that's what they did. Yes. And then somebody got exposed to that culture and brought it back to a different culture. Yeah. Like you saw West Coast and you brought it back to the East Coast or something like yeah. that. But now, because of social media, mm -hmm. the moment it's seen, it can be duplicated anyway. Yeah. And is duplicated, as we've seen by fucking TikTok and stuff yeah. like that. So in that world, you still maintain a fucking brand that like has insane brand loyalty, but also gets to set a tone over and over and over again. You're not chasing. Yeah, for the most part, we try not to. No, we have to be aware and sensitive of the trends that are going on. I'm like not an idiot. I have to, you know, I can't just be. What does that mean? So like if you're. To put it in 80s parlance. Yeah. If the hundreds was an 80s clothing company. Okay. <laughs> maybe you're like, I fucking hate the idea of parachute pants. But yeah. you're like, but they're selling. Yeah. So if we don't make it, we look stupid. N yeah. I mean, there's there was a version of that. There were these jogger pants that were very popular for like 10 years. And if you ask some streetwear enthusiasts, they still wear it. We literally, we never did it. I just what, refuse. What is, so what is jogging? We're like they're, um, they're essentially not like a juicy. No, they're essentially like just sweatpants, but they end in like a cuff so that it kind of accentuates your sneakers that you can wear. Yeah, and like so, old fucking. They're like sweatpants. 80s sweatpants. Yeah, but then you can make them out of twill and cotton and different kinds of pant materials so that you could have like chinos that basically end in a uh, 
a cuffed, you know, ankle. And a chino bottom. is a type of chinos are chinos are actually like a type. I'm wearing dickies right now. These are pretty much a like a workwear way. chino. Yeah, it's also a racist term for someone who looks like me. If you're coming chino, from like a really? Spanish speaking country, that's not the chino I'm talking about. <laughs> I am a chino on the mic right now, but um, no, the actual chinos are a type of pants. They're you know, workwear pants. Yeah. So it's not a name brand. It's like capris. Yeah, they're exactly. Like that's what cut. that's Do like. Jeans, chinos, every yeah. fucking type of pant in the world. Yeah. Of- I mean, yeah, because the trends change so fast. And what we were talking about, even before we started recording is so much of my inspiration comes from responding to whatever the hegemony is, right? Like whatever everyone else is doing, like I look at that and it usually pisses me off. If everyone's making jogger pants, I'm like, this is gross. I need to do the exact opposite, which is at that time, this was years ago, we just started making really oversized big pants again. And so, so what was that? What is that? Like that's just, just like elephant trunk jeans baggy. Or? Yeah, like baggy uh, cargo pants, kind like bringing back look. like na- 90s look. And we're still somewhat in that mode. We're kind of like in between now where it's like between oversized and the but we're not back to like that skinny or let alone even like the jogger pant thing. But the jogger pant thing, it just never aesthetically didn't ever appeal to me because so much of my design is stemming from growing up in the 90s, right? Like in on the West Coast, in Riverside, in Southern California, I shopped at swap meets growing up. Same as you. I was never into fashion, still am not like the actual theater of fashion and the industry of fashion has just never been really that intriguing to me. I've always been interested in style and storytelling and cultures and subcultures, right? Like so much of streetwear to me is like being as it's in their badges to identify with different social tribes, right? And so that's what's really cool to me is that, you know, I grew up in the punk scene, the graffiti scene, backpack rap scene in the 90s. And Wait, you'd go backpack rap, backpack rap like, like underground rap, you know, just why do they call it backpack rap? Uh, I'm sure there is a better explanation for this, but the backpack was a part of that uniform, you know, like that's where your cans were that you'd paint with your markers, your, your black book and everything. Cause hip hop in the nineties, like the real hip hop heads understood it as this thing about, do you remember this thing about the four elements? No. Like you couldn't just be into hip hop music. You had to be into, there's four elements. There's graffiti. So like that's the tagging. art side, tagging murals. Like that's the, ta- that's the art side of the, the visual element of, of what hip hop is. And then there's turntablism and then there's emceeing, which is rapping. And then there's, um, Wait, uh oh, I'm missing. Oh, and b boying. So break dancing. And so you couldn't just be into rap music. That didn't make any sense. You were like missing the other three of the four parts this of the equation. This is why I was a failure yeah. as, a, as an 80s and 90s hip hop enthusiast <laughs> yeah. because I just liked the music and didn't realize yeah. there were other elements to add to it. And of course, the music is what became mainstream right, because right. it's like most, you know, musical genres, it's the most appealing part. But uh, there was a moment where all four of them were kind of at the same level. You know, if you were into hip hop, you were a b boy, you did graffiti, you were, you had, you collected records, you did the scratching, you know, like right, the invisible right. scratch pickles thing. 
And I think that one was the first one to kind of go real underground, like the turntablism. Everyone's just like, I can't really do this. There can only re- be like a few DJs. And then um, graffiti still exists. B-boying kind of like has come in and out. But rap is now pop music, right? Yeah. Where the majority of Billboard top 100 hits of the year are rap songs. That which was is, incredible to watch in, it's, in our lifetime. Yes, because it was such a fad. It was like a fr- trend. Well, it was, yeah. well, what it was was... Like it went through a couple different permutations. One was uh, the first time you I heard it in mainstream culture was through Blondie and Rapture. Yeah, that was the idea of like this sounds different than any other singing. Like yeah. she's not singing; she's just rhyming things like a poem. That's interesting. Yeah, and then Grandmaster Flash happens, and then my great hip hop awakening awakening is probably circa nineteen. 83 or like run dmc or something yeah. like that yeah um and then that that's my entire era so like houdini um uh epmb stetsasonic uh, into um public enemy yeah um and so forth and so that hip-hop culture comes from back east yeah so you guys out here we had our own version of what that was, our Which own interpretation. Like NWA, yeah, a lot of LA. What eventually became coined as gangster rap, right? And then that became commercialized, commodified. The industry swooped in on it, put it on the radio, and so there was a response to that because you have to remember in the early '90s, hip hop was still so relatively fresh uh-huh. that. The kids that were into it, they weren't necessarily so happy about the fact that a lot of this was ending up on the radio or in movies or ending up on a pop chart. And so there was this backlash of what is the underground genre version interpretation of this look like. And that's that backpack rap, underground hip hop. You know, these are groups like my favorite was a group called Hieroglyphics out of the Bay. Right. So like Del the Funky, Homo Sapien, Casual, Souls of Mischief. You know, like that era, J. Rue, The Damages, like a a good example of of just this era of backpack rap. I mean, that eventually evolved and turned into like the battle rap scene and, you know, arguably the biggest backpack rapper to actually make it was someone like Eminem, right? Like he's like fully from that underground rap world and then became a superstar. Um, But I was always more drawn to that because it was like the fringe of the fringe, you know? So I grew up in the punk scene, but I was... Uh, really immersed in the straight edge hardcore fringy part of it, which straight edge was like the anti of the anti, right? It's like, I want to be a punk rocker, but I don't want to smoke and drink and do all that. I'm going to do the opposite. If they're eating meat, I'm going to become vegan. And it was always trying to be as anti as possible. And there you see that reflected even in streetwear because streetwear was prop, you know, as hip hop music blew up, streetwear is essentially the fashion component of what hip hop is. And so we're about 10 years behind in terms of the mainstream notoriety and everything. But over the last like seven to 10 years, it went main- mainstream, right? So now streetwear is just fashion, high fashion, you know, a guy named Virgil Abloh, who a lot of people know in our world, went from being a young streetwear designer like myself and is now the head of head designer at Louis Vuitton, right? And so Louis Vuitton, which is a big luxury fashion house, has a lot, a lot of leg- legacy to it, uh, is being run by 
a black man who came from streetwear, who really got his start by printing graphic T-shirts with Kanye's merch in the back of a screen print shop. Wow. And so there's a lot of stories like that. Now, a lot of the fashion houses are pulling and, you know, from streetwear guys like Matt Williams um, and, you know, Jerry Lorenzo from Fear of God, who's now like running things at Adidas Basketball. <coughs> so same thing kind of happened to streetwear. Uh, as is is what happened with hip hop music. It happened about a decade later, but it just became mainstream. And because it became mainstream and it happened so fast, there is an underground streetwear movement as well that is responding to that and saying, we want nothing to do with that. We don't want to be like Supreme. Supreme is probably the best known streetwear brand in the world. You know, we want to oppose that. And so you're seeing a generation of young kids who are starting brands that are like, we don't want to be on any mainstream radar. We don't want to be on the fashion runways. And, you know, so you, this it's just culture spawning subculture, which spawns another subculture. And that'll never die. I always thought that once the internet took off in a way, like I thought like Prince back then, mm. I was like, there's, there's going to come a point in time where, because you can just click on anything that nothing will be underground. Like there cannot be any subculture, but um, I was grossly mistaken because we're sitting here in 2021 and there's so much vibrant subculture that will never ever have commercial appeal that kids will just forever thrive and live, live on and, and, and appreciate. And it's not just in fashion and music anymore. It's in, I'm looking at like your pop Funko pops or like it's in collectibles now and trading cards. It's in NFTs. It's in the drug culture. And so there's like, if anything, there's even more subculture now because there's better ways to bridge these communities online. There's dis discords and Reddit boards and, um, different Facebook groups that you can form. And so like, if anything, there's more and more of these cells. Whereas back in the day we had three channels to watch when I was growing up, there was like 10 channels, right. you know, and like five radio stations. And so everyone, even as much as you thought you were independent and underground, we all knew who Madonna was. Whereas today you, I can name like a pop star and bring it up to a bunch of kids <coughs> and be like, this is the biggest, like Billie Eilish or someone. And I bet you I can still find kids who are like, I don't even know who that is. I've never heard her song. Before. Is that true? It can, it's definitely true. Yeah. Like where I will mention a mainstream thing to me. Cause yeah. I'm like, even I know who Billie Eilish is. Of course. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, fucking every kid, they yeah. must be popping out the womb listening to this shit. No. It's nice to know that even somebody who has that kind of penetration. Yeah. Doesn't, penetrate everybody to the point and not where they're like i don't like her shit but where they're like no they're just like i don't yeah i don't oh i've been hearing i think i've heard of her i never heard her music before let's show you how fucking vast this world is every once in a while you're like god the place is so small but then when you're like oh that's possible yeah and and it's not even possible it's probable yeah and then you then you have to step back and be like oh i live in a bubble where i think everybody and then you're right back to the whole yeah this is where everything i know is based on where i grew up yeah so it's funny because the internet has distorted our lens of what we think you know we're all on the same page in ubiquity and we're all listening to the same thing um more than ever because of the way that news and cycle and trends cycle so fast now but if you're just one degree over you can miss the entire thing right I was if I I closed my eyes for a week. I was in Hawaii last week on spring break and I was kind of on social but not and then I missed the entire Kevin Durant Michael Rappaport thing. I just missed the entire thing. Right. And um I know both of those guys and like it didn't end up in my periphery. 
you know, and so like three and days later, how yeah, fast the news cycle is, and just how niche you can get in terms of what you're looking at. I, you know, during that time, I think I was just I was in the water a lot, but I was also probably just reading a lot of news about art and streetwear stuff, and it just wasn't within my. And your chamber. point is like you know both of those guys, and still it didn't still doesn't hit you yeah. Well. So you know, having a, I think just a perspective on what it means for information like what how information works right now and like how people digest it and uh perhaps we're not as far off from the mid 90s <laughs> as we thought we were That's you know like to hear as well. yeah right um all right so if supreme is the top streetwear brand and and just as yeah. a as a reference for the uninitiated <clears throat> the top streetwear brand comparatively to like what's what would a, a not a streetwear brand be but something that like is ubiquitous that sells it like old navy what's this what's the mainstream standard not standard meaning what people for clothing in general sure. yeah i mean like an old navy gap h&m right gap, zara still probably not that was, was a very say, 90s thing probably even i Uniqlo. at 50 i'm like i don't know i don't know bobby you better go to the gap <laughs> all soon the, all the kids are like gap you on know. google so G-A-T. who is it is it h&m is that a big brand? h&m uniqlo these are pretty mainstream so if h&m yeah. is supreme in the streetwear world or if supreme sure is yeah h&m in the streetwear yeah, world, yeah yeah where are you guys where's oh hundreds? man i don't even and, know how to quantify that and does somebody rebel against you like is of there course somebody who's like these guys are too fucking mainstream for me oh yeah a lot of former customers kids who grew up with the brand and what what age makes, out of it what so is that it they're just saying look i know a thing or two about you know that your audience oh fuck <laughs> yeah and there's nothing more heartbreaking then somebody who's just like, oh, I'm just over him. And yeah. you're like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and not even as a, you know, fuck, I count on your dollars for my business. But more as a like, it's, oh, man. It's so hard. This is the one. It's always someone coming up to you going, I used to wear your clothes or I used to be a fan. Oh, I grew up wearing your clothes like that. I grew up watching your movies. Yeah, and you're I like, that a lot. but you don't watch them yeah. now. You know, I made one last week, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah I yeah. grew up on but it. But I grew up on it. Like that, it's always... It's nice to hear, right. uh, but at the same time, you're like, but why not now? But I get it. Especially for our brand, we are um, kind of a gateway streetwear brand where people get into it when they're really young right. because we are not as exclusive, as snobbish, as elitist as some of the other higher tier streetwear brands. We're more of a... Um, you know, we we try. We're a community, so we try to accept everybody. We educate everyone. It's very easy to onboard into our brand. Mm. You know, like you follow my social media. I'm pretty gentle. I will talk you through it. I respond to every DM. I wrote a book to basically provide a manual to kids on like how to build your own brand. So I'm like, if you're trying to get into streetwear, we have probably the biggest doorway in. And so um, a lot of kids get in when they're younger in their middle school and high school years. And this is probably to your point, too, with your films in the 90s and stuff like the kids, whatever you're into when you're 13, 14, 15, by the time you're 20, you just cannot be into it anymore. 
right? Because you're trying to divorce yourself from who you were when you were that embarrassing, prepubescent, awkward child. And so you can't be listening to the same music. You can't be dressing the same. You know, you can't be talking the same. Like, you have to carry yourself. I'm an adult now. Like, that's what I did when I was in eighth grade. Now I'm in college. And so that's where we see a lot of people start questioning what their relationship is with our brand. There are kids who stick with it all the way through, but there tends to be sometimes... A moment where they get into their early 20s and they're just like, well, now I'm like a little bit more open to other brands. And like, what is this Supreme thing? Oh, this is like a harder to get version of the hundreds. It's a little bit more expensive. Then they want to, once they get past Supreme, then they start getting to high fashion. And, you know, and then they're looking What's at. After? So wait, what do you mean high fashion? Like uh, Louis Vuitton? And Louis, Gucci yeah, sure. And of like course. That? Like Dior and, you know, getting to like just so they, luxury. They, they literally go from, if you're the gateway. Yeah. The journey can begin with like oh, I fucking love this the hundred shit yeah because and literally wind up with like yes you know what Dior's doing mm-hmm. that's yeah. so nuts man that's many of the the men and the women who are designing in the high fashion space they grew up wearing our clothes grew up wearing the brand so you right? met people in that all way, the time like yeah there's a guy named Kirby like- who is an amazing incredible designer he has his own brand called Pierre Moss. Um, I don't know if he's still creative directing at Reebok, but he's very influential in the fashion space. But I was in Paris sitting next to him at, a, at an Amiri show. Um, and he was just like, hey, I grew up wearing your brand. And it's really flattering. And I love hearing that. But it's the case with many of these designers. They are like, hey, I grew up wearing it. It's easy to get into the $20 t-shirts, but they're still limited. There's still a little bit of status associated with the brand. So they get trained, indoctrinated pretty young on the importance of brand and communities and like, okay, this brand stands for this. And it means that I'm a little bit better than somebody who's wearing H&M because H&M, they make thousands of that, whereas they only made 50 of these. And so this is like a more exclusive item. I'm more special than the next kid in in my class so they get really wrapped up into that but then when they grow up a little bit older they have some more money and they're like well if everyone can afford the hundreds that are at my age what is it going to put me on that next step where if i wear dior or gucci everyone's just like whoa that's like a two thousand dollar t-shirt you're wearing or ten thousand dollar suit you're wearing and so now you're really special and so people just evolve and they graduate into these different levels but the nice thing is especially with our brand, because we have so much goodwill associated with the brand in general and just our relationship with our customers. Goodwill being, um, they do a lot of events. We do, yeah. They're quite like... uh, Oh, you're talking about goodwill, goodwill. I'm talking about like just goodwill around the brand, like just like good vibes around the brand. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I I didn't mean goodwill (laughs) like the good, you know, like the goodwill people, but like you guys have (laughs) have a community. Yeah, that like... You know, uh, the, back in the 90s when we had the Viewskew message board and whatnot, we slowly built exactly a community. And yeah. you have people, I'm sure, based on what you've said, that you probably met who are like, this is our kid who we named after. 100%. Be- you guys, because yep. fucking we met yeah. through, through hundreds one of your events. Commun- events. Yeah. What? Why were the ev- events... Was it strategic or in, why did you think them important? Not every clothing brand does what you guys yeah, do. Yeah, we do a lot of events. And now we and have kids. It's like they'll do shit where they're like pop up in the desert. Yeah. Come here. <laughs> we had to do that during the pandemic. Yeah. And, and, and the idea is essentially you just open up a store. People go and buy yeah, it because pop up shops. it's yeah. going to be after that window. 
those clothes don't exist. Anymore. Right, exactly. Providing experiences, things for kids to do, young people to do, find each other. But um, look, I when we started this brand, I thought I was just developing a clothing company like anybody else. How right? old were you? 23 is when we launched a brand here in LA. You and Ben knew each other how long? We met each other a few months before at the start of our first year of law school. You were, you were going to become a lawyer? Yeah. So we were both in law school lost. Uh, Where's law school? Loyola. I don't know. That's, where is that? That that campus is I've downtown. Downtown LA. It's like right in the heart of downtown. And so you went... With the idea of one day being a lawyer, you meet him. He's also in law school. Yeah. Did he dress like you? Yes. And so that's what uh, that's what we we identified each other immediately because in law school, especially in the year two thousand three, there were not a lot of kids who were wearing streetwear. Everyone's trying uh, to dress for the job you want. Yeah, the, exactly. Whatever, blah, people blah, blah. people take themselves a little bit more seriously. They're ready to grow up. So they're wearing button ups and they're carrying their little briefcases and stuff. Streetwear in general was not trending in America yet. Uh, there was no Supreme store on the West coast. Um, there's only the New York store. Um, but we, Ben so was wait, wearing Supreme begins in New York. Supreme began in New York. Yes. As a skate shop in New York, uh, in the late nineties by a guy named James Jebbia. Um, and they first a skate sh- skate shop, and then they were like, "Oh, we can make shirts." Yeah, and then essentially, yeah. Oh, we can make jeans. And yeah, so so so. Associating so. with that downtown tribe of New York skaters, if you've watched the movie Kids, yeah, right, that's very early Supreme generation. Like those kids were the kids who built what Supreme is. Ex- wow. Yeah. Check you out. So that's that's the history, and then it got really popular in Japan. Japan was really sensitive to what a lot of New York street fashion was doing at that time, mm. and so there was a guy named Nigo who came to New York a lot, was kind of uh, observing how the kids were dressing in the high schools and whatnot. He went back to New York, uh, to Japan, started a brand called the Bathing Ape, right? So this brand Bape is popping off in Japan. Supreme's working in New York. Supreme gets really hot in Japan. And the Japanese in the 90s was really good with otaku culture, which now everyone just understands in, in the Western side of the world as collectors, collectible culture, right? Again, the baseball cards, the Funkos and all that. But Japan was doing that in the 90s already where they were hoarding Levi's vintage denim, right? They were coming to the States, going to swamp meets, getting old Levi's that Americans were like, I don't want any of this stuff anymore. You know, I wore this in the 80s with the holes, the button flies, the 501s and like, I'm out, I'm over it. Mm. By the late 90s, America was really into everyone in khakis, like the Gap commercial, like the swing dancing, like we don't wear denim anymore. We wear khakis and chinos and workwear pants like that. And so Japan's coming over here, scooping up all our trash, all these like vintage Levi's that are torn up and then selling them for like 10X, you know, on the streets of, of Harajuku. And then they came back and they were like, next Jordans, Nike Airs, Air Force Ones, Nike Dunks. Because again, in the late 90s, people are like, we don't wear this anymore. The popular shoe, DC skate shoes, right? DVS, like the skate companies blew up. All the, Even the girls were wearing big puffy skate shoes. They're like, we don't want Nikes. Nikes are corporate. Nikes are child labor. You know, there's nothing punk and subculture or hip hop about those. Those are just commercial and mainstream. So Japan comes, takes all our vintage shoes, goes over there treats them like buried treasure, like wraps them in plastic, stocks them up on their walls. And then, you know, the Japanese were like, oh, this is really rare. Like I grew up wearing this. I want it again. But now it's, you know, 
$200, to buy a pair of shoes. I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to start collecting them. And there was a, as Japan was pulling from American culture, which they've always done really well, if you think about automobiles and, and everything and technology, they were doing that within our subcultures. And then there was a component of American kids and American designers who were then looking at Japan going, oh, the way that they're reappropriating our fashion and our collectibles we want to do that. And so they were both informing each other, right? And that so New nuts. York started going to Japan going, hey, our brands, we'll introduce them here. We're going to kind of pull what you're doing, bring it over to the States. You know, so then there's a, a shop called A-Life in New York and Undefeated in, in LA. And they started building these sneaker boutiques that felt very much like what Japan was doing, treating the sneakers as like pieces of art. And they're very limited and they're rare and the rarity game of it all. And then in the early 2000s, sneaker culture just explodes, right? With the help of <coughs> message boards and with the help of streetwear and all that. But we were right in the mix of all that. that's also about rareability. Or, or Rarity. Rarity, yeah. Right. Which is now the name of the game with everything, right? Which, everything which needs to be like, rare. As a manufacturer, yeah. like this is just a guy from the sidelines kind of makes more sense because it's like you know the old way was we're gonna make a bunch of a thing yeah and hope we could sell them all yeah um which means a lot of people are left with warehouses full of shit that yeah you have selling. to go on sale yeah this new way is we're gonna make 200 of this and when it's gone it's gone yeah what makes it profitable multiple products or like it's frequent drops frequency. So, yeah. and that also creates community because it's like, hey, something's coming. Yeah. Hey, something's coming. Frequency works really well. It gels well with social media because social people need updates constantly. Right. So, when we Jesus. were starting, like your view of skew boards, like when we started our website in 2003, we had a blog. We we're, were actually one of the first fashion brands to really orient around a blog. But even that blog, I updated. Once a day, once every two days. And that was a lot back then. Right. Because most websites, they had a news section that updated once a month, right? Mm. <laughs> Which was just like, here's all the news for the month. Mm. See you next month for your mo monthly newsletter. And I was going in every day. We didn't even have Blogger. We were just, I was like using <laughs> HTML, like building the code and writing new blogs every day. People were like, man, there's new content on your website every day. And now you need it every second. Right. You need to constantly how, refresh on your Instagram. How often do you like, will you post in a day? Well, my your personal, personal feed different. probably once or twice a day But for the hundreds, about four times a day. Yeah. And there are four things to talk about a day now. <laughs> like there's <laughs> actually purpose behind the news. It's not just we're just filling it to fill. It. It's like there's literally drops happening throughout the week now where we used to do a drop a month, you know, a drop meaning a special product that we would release and there's a limited supply and people would line up for it physically at a store like that was a drop. And now we have multiple of them throughout a week. Right. And so you need to build a marketing campaign around each one of those drops with its own lookbook. You need editorial attached to each one that provides the context and the storytelling behind that drop and the video components and all that. So it's the frequency of it and 
not the repetition, but just it, you need to keep the energy constantly going. And so it's exhausting as opposed to, oh, we're going to build a collection all season and then release it, you know, once every season, like once every three months, there'll be like a drop and we'll build everything up into that moment, make all that money with that one drop. We don't do, we still do that, but we also pepper in drops throughout. And so, Every two to three, and what happens with my work is that every single day I'm doing something completely different. Like every day of my job is a completely different job where I'll be here. I'm doing a, a, your podcast, you know, with Kevin Smith because we have a project coming out. And then I run home and then I'm shooting a lookbook on the beach with, um, Rick, with a bunch of surfers because we're doing a Rick Griffin project and Rick Griffin was an old school surf illustrator mm. right and then if we're then tomorrow working with a rapper so then have to go to the studio and sit down with him and build that campaign out but every day I'm doing something new so your job satisfaction is like fucking through the roof like I love my life like do the, the yeah. job every day like I hate my fucking job yeah, every day your job literally changes every while day still changes. being like not like now I have to learn a whole new thing. No, although, but sometimes you still have yeah, to do learn sometimes shit. I do. <laughs> yeah, we're really you know speaking of NFTs and crypto art and all that stuff. We're going so hard into that. So the last three to four months has me just pouring over NFT literature and Same speaking here. to everyone on the subject and trying to wrap my mind around DAOs and fractionalized NFTs and trying to learn. And I hope I never stop learning. You know, this is what i love to do i'm <coughs> the nfts must be like appealing to you as an artist i love it i love it as an <coughs> artist i also just love it as someone who champions community mm. right and the fact that um money is going directly to young people to independent artists we can create these DAOs using the blockchain where co organizations can be owned by the people like that whole aspect of it is probably the most interesting the where we're at right now like literally on this day because every day the nft thing keeps changing the goalposts keep moving around today it's really about these flashy gif like right. 3d rendered little pieces and a stuff thing that does a thing does a thing they're like weird little widgets or like fidget spinners or something yes. and i'm like they're cool like I get it, but I don't think people are really appreciating what the NFT technology or really the what Ethereum, what the blockchain technology can do for just everything in general in life and just how companies are structured and um, how people get paid and what ownership means, right? Like if you look at it more like that, you're like, it has nothing to do with this. The art is just helping us transition into this yes. metaverse. Into a kind of um, more democratic currency. Yeah. But we needed the artist to do that because crypto is very confusing and heavy for most people, still, even for me. Yeah. Still, I don't completely understand blockchain technology. And so it's been around for 10 years. You know, I have a crypto wallet. I got some Bitcoin. Uh, still don't really get what's going on. I still very much live in the physical world. What the NFTs did was that it provided people with, hey, you like this painting? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I get that. I don't understand a crypto thing, but I like that painting cool now you're into crypto right, right? it's yes. just like like what artists always do they gentrify right yes you don't understand this neighborhood let's put some artists in here some studios put up some murals go to art hey i'm now in this part of the, the city i've never it's been out literally here literally how it got me i got a piece of a of a bitcoin for um christmas from jason and jordan and you know it, i was like oh this is nice thank you and it's been fun watching it do what it did 
<clears throat> but crypto did not capture my imagination until another yeah. friend of mine was like, um, I want to do a thing with you. And I was like, well, what is that? And he explained the NFT. And I was like, oh, that's, you're talking chromium covers, man. Like, it's literally, or you're talking yeah. pogs, or you're yeah, talking exactly. Like, um, the idea of a collectible mm-hmm. made it land in my fucking head. Totally. Then when I found out, like, oh, it's art based. That's how I've been describing. It. I'm like, yeah. it's artist currency. Yeah. And like, you know, when you buy a painting, obviously art can be currency. Like, you know, somebody sells a fucking painting for like twenty million bucks. But you can't like walk into a fucking grocery store, buy a bottle of soda, put the painting on the counter, yeah. and be like, "Can I have my change?" <laughs> like, so it's worth something, yeah. But it's not literally currency, right? The NFT is art that is also currency. Yeah, yeah. You can look at it like that. That, that to me is how it works. It's yeah. tradable and it has a value that doesn't go down. It maintains its mm-hmm. its value, and then of course could go. You know, it can go up and down. Yeah, I mean, you can look at it like we're getting back to old school bartering, right? Yes. Where we're like trading things with art. I did. What I got into it was like, oh, I can have a gallery where I could showcase people because, like, I I know how to get attention for a thing. Mm -hmm. I've been selling shit for fucking 25 years. I've had a store and we've been making merchandise and shit. So it's all in the wheelhouse. Yeah. But when when the when it really fucking connected for me was i was like okay i can have a gallery where we're selling our nfts yeah that call attention to the gallery yep but then we can showcase artists who are like hey i drew your guys mm-hmm. so it's like okay great fucking showcase it here and you know we'll split what you fucking make and we'll give you the ip you give us the art and bam man like yeah that that to me is like democratizing the idea of like if you're good at something get fucking paid to do yeah, exactly. it exactly like why work yeah. for somebody else like fucking create a, a thing of your own so yeah. it, it's a nice way I felt like for me to go like okay you can showcase an artist who then like somebody buys their Jane Bob NFT they're like what else you got and they go follow them to their 100% place and fucking build yeah. their, build their world and stuff so it it, it also captured my imagination it's so delighted to hear it captured yours as well because that means i'm like oh my finger's not that far from the fucking pulse yeah <laughs> um, and i'm also fucking delighted to hear that a guy as smart as you is like uh look i did it i don't understand it but the moment they made it palatable always in yeah. the same way yeah. they did for me i'm like yeah. all right fucking he gets yeah. it as well the, the fact when if you ever listen or talk to someone and they say they completely understand nfts and they're like oh this is what you don't they don't know what they're talking about because <laughs> nobody really understands it that's the point that's why there's so much froth around it is that we are building the definition every single day mm. right 10 years from now we are going to have a definition we'll have a clearer understanding of what's happening right now but no one knows what's like literally you can you're you're we're drawing the map as we speak and so how can you know where you stand how can you know where you exist or you're located in the world the world doesn't even exist right so like we're building the definition day by day people are coming up with different apps different technical technological innovations every day to accommodate the nft space and um, the rules change again tomorrow, which is why I think it intrigues, again, people like us, entrepreneurial people, 
people who just like to munch on ideas. I don't even buy and sell. I don't even make a lot of I mint NFTs here and there. I buy and kind of trade and do a little bit. But for me, it's more about the conversation. Right, right, right. Right. Where I'm just using my brain in a different capacity where I'm like, okay, if we are more and more willing to accept that we live in a in the metaverse, right? Because I spend the majority of my day in this glass doom box, right? He's holding up his phone. It was yeah, I'm holding up my phone. <laughs> and so like the majority of my day the is now in here. Box. Yeah, the glass doom box. <laughs> then what does it matter that I have all these physical things in my life? Right? Like mm. what why do I have these paintings or these books or the clothes that I wear when the only person I saw today is you? Right. So I really got dressed just for you in real life. But on my phone, I post a story, I take a selfie, I'm talking to my video. My hundreds of thousands of people see my out my my followers see my outfit. And so my metaverse life, my digital life is so much more meaningful and impactful than what's going on in my physical life. So why do I have all this stuff? That's what it ends up becoming where you start questioning, why do I need to own so many things or is is what I own in the physical world devalued? Shouldn't I be equipping and strengthening what I have in my digital life? Oh my God, that's mind melting. It's but like it's so fucking true. It's just true. If, if you talk to kids about it, they understand it without hesitation because they grow up, they've grown up in virtual worlds where they're amassing digital tokens, right? The best example of this, mm. Christmas Day, my wife and I, you know, give the kids, my, I have an eight and an 11 year old boy, two boys, and, you know, give them some Funko Pops, give them some action figures and some clothes, some fancy shoes, some cool Nikes. Thanks, Daddy. Thanks, Mommy. Open everything up. Play with everything for 10 minutes. They play with their battery-operated thing. The batteries last like 10 minutes. Right. Or always with Christmas gifts. And then they're like, cool. They jump right back into their video games, their Fortnites, and they're Among Us, whatever. And they're like, hey, Daddy, can I get some V-Bucks so that I can buy the, the back bling or the skin in Fortnite? And I'm like, yeah, because, especially in a pandemic, you <coughs> haven't seen any of your friends all year outside of the screen right and so what does it matter if you have the newest air jordans that i spent 200 dollars on i'd rather give you the 200 dollars virtual shoes that your character can run around with that your friends are just like how did you get those cool fortnite shoes in the game you know and so they already understand the power of digital assets right. and digital ownership and how the metaverse life is much more meaningful to them than what goes on in real life. And even whether or not you think that's sad or dystopian, it's not really the conversation. Like I, It's so weird. It's, I don't have a judgment for it. I wasn't like, I guess the judgment I had was, was oh my God, fucking fascinating. That's true. It's like yeah. for a generation <clears throat> that grew up inside the iPad, inside their phone, inside yeah. their laptop, inside their fucking their desktop or whatever, digital assets... Like, you always hear people when they criticize the NFT or, like, come at the NFT, like, well, what is it? Yeah. Like, where is I don't get it. I don't like, get it. That's it? it? Yeah. Like, blah, blah, blah. But the generation that grew up in their phones yeah. get it because they're like, what do I – I don't fucking need it on my wall, on my yeah. desk, on my shelf. Like, place where it's going to be able to show off exactly. is where I live 80 to 5, 90% of my life. And the dystopian angle is, uh, you know – Is it dystopian or is it more like a cyberpunk future that we're heading to? Exactly. Where, you know, it is we're we're on a path to be cyborgs in a way that yeah. it wasn't how one intended, like bionics and shit. And it's yeah. like 
no, we're we're fusing with our technology in a way. Yeah. As much as it never leaves our hands, never leaves our heads, never leaves our hearts. Yeah. And so, like you said, to your point, if you exist there in the meta, is it metaverse? Mm-hmm. Is that what they're in calling? the metaverse? Yeah. That's the place to showcase. That's where your you bling, your your and, and flex and whatever. Your, exactly. And the people who critique in, they're like, I don't get it. I, I need the physical thing. I'm like. Think about most of your personal friendships in your life. They're probably with people you haven't seen in at least a year. Yeah. Most of my closest friends I haven't seen in like two years. Right. Right. There are people that I'm friends with on social media that I've never met that I've known for 20 years. Right. That I like started emailing over AOL. Almost on a day. And I talk to them every day. And so I don't have those in real life, in the physical world. They, it all exists digitally. That relationship exists digitally. It's all metaverse. It's all metaverse. And the same with, <coughs> you know why music wins in NFTs is that music has a 20-year head start on this. The NFT conversation, a lot of it is just like, well, I kind of need like the physical pairing with it. This is what happened when music moved from CDs to MP3s. And everyone was just like, I'm not comfortable with just having an MP3. I need like a physical token to go with it. And the record labels were like, all right, well, here's like a book and a t-shirt that comes with your little USB flash drive. <laughs> but now this generation and the way that we are now, like we understand music as you don't have anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't have DVDs. I stream my movies on Netflix. Like I don't have CDs or records like piled up in the corner of my room. I just go on Spotify and I listen to what I want to. It's all happening in the cloud somewhere. Like I don't need the physical component of it. Right. And so people seem to understand music's moving really fast with NFTs. A lot of the artists have gotten really hip to and people understand, oh, I can I, I can buy an NFT. That, I get it. I don't need like a physical thing for music. But for whatever reason, when it comes to like a visual painting or whatever, they're like, oh, I need something physical to go with that. And I'm like, why? Because you just need a photo of it. And everyone knows you have it. All you're trying to do is say that you have this thing, you know, that you appreciate it, that you appreciate its worth, that the, the whoever created it put a lot of time and effort into it. That's all it really ever stood for. So, like, why do you need the physical? You know, so it gets into a lot of those questions. When you start really thinking of the metaverse as essentially needs to mirror what's happening in the physical world, mm-hmm. right? Then NFTs open up <clears throat> everything. NFTs, like there can be NFTs for Tums, for coins, NFTs, there should be an NFT version of this table in the metaverse. And people are doing that. They're building virtual homes, buying up virtual real estate, um, decentralized. The, the home thing, like somebody built an online home and... Yeah, you build like a, an NFT, which is essentially a certificate on the blockchain that says that you own this home in the blockchain universe, right? Like in the digital universe, you have this home. And, you know, look, you can't like physically, like your physical body can't go live in that home. Mm-hmm. But let's say your digital character can. As I'm saying, you could store shit in it. Yeah, like, you can store shit in there. Does you that can shit sell exist it. yet? Or? It already exists. That's existed for a while. There's there's something called Decentraland where you can like buy up parcels of land and stuff. But people are already starting to map out, for example, here in L.A., just taking the Sunset Strip and flipping real estate on NFTs and being like, oh, in the metaverse, I own that building. Right. Are you shitting me? So somebody yeah. can in the metaverse buy the Hyatt house, the Riot house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
Right now you can. It's that wild west. It's that wild west. And within like, you know, you were talking about in 10 years, but probably within two years, it's going to be more defined where super yeah. So like the Hyatt house. People are going to be like, you can't fucking sell a fake version or the you know, there's number one. It's not a fake version. Motherfucker. It's, yeah. It's, it's like an it's NFT. A, it's, it's a, a real thing version. to me. Yeah. So like, but that value, we built the value in the real world, but the metaverse is not the real. Yeah. Like, and IP intellectual property law has not caught up yet to NFTs and, the digital realm and so people are going out there using physical world ip like a banksy painting and minting it and selling it as an nft and everyone's like wait that's not yours that's banksy's and you don't even own the physical painting and they're like whatever and flipping it and making money and so that's how wild west it is like there's there's a lot of weird parts that come with it as well because there's so much you know vulnerabilities so many cracks in the system but if you're smart enough about it, you can get in and grab what you can and, you know, just hedge your bets that in 10 years that this will become a real thing. It's kind of like how domain. Do you remember when people were squatting on domains? Yeah, yeah. And they're you're like, I had McDonald's.com at one point. Are you shitting me? Yeah. But I was like, I knew at the time when I got it that I couldn't hold it for two. I was just like, at some point, they're going to sue me. But the IP hasn't caught up yet. Right. Like the law hasn't caught up to this. So until I have it. Maybe I'll, and I think I flipped it to someone for like 400 bucks in college and I thought I was rich. Uh, and it was like, you know, but I was just like, before they sue me for this, let me just get rid of it and I'll get, make my 400, $400. But it's the same thing with NFTs right now. So wait, it's that so raw. In, uh, you had the McDonald's.com in college? Yeah. Early in college, like freshman year. So yeah, when you went to law school, that's after college. That's, that's after, your, yeah, yeah. Graduate post. school. Um, you guys meet, you're wearing the same clothing. Yeah, so we're both wearing streetwear, Supreme and A-Life, which were big brands at the time, still are. I was wearing some Air Force Ones with Louis Vuitton uh, checks on them, and he was wearing a black Jordan Force. Wait, so go back. Say what you were wearing again. I was wearing black uh, Nike Air Force Ones with customized Louis Vuitton swooshes on them. Meaning you an art, an, an, an No, artist an, 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 an artist did that. <laughs> So, and that was a thing back then. It kind of recirculated as another trend recently, but every 20 years or so that So happens. you had those on and this guy was like, Ben was like, oh, fuck. But yeah, That's Ben was badass. wearing black Jordan 4s, which are still his favorite shoe, one of my favorite shoes. And this was, again, 2000. Well, this was 2002. Uh, it's when we started law school. And everyone else is dressed as a square. And I look down and I'm like, nice shoes. And he's just like, yeah, nice shoes to you as well. And that's still to this day how lots of streetwear relationships are built. Are you shitting me? Dudes it's just like admiring the, it's code. other dude shoes. It's just men because men are just not good at intimacy or bridging relationships. We have to do it in an indirect way. <laughs> this is fucking fascinating. Right? <laughs> like fascinating. You know that Chris Rock skit about my wife puts me into the room with the other guys. I like baseball. Do you like baseball? It's that. Right. But guys in the streetwear world are trying to be really tough, right? A lot of them are like just kind of cool guys and not the most communicative types and definitely not the most keen on male bonding. And so you need some kind of indirect way to enter into that relationship. Create a, create a relationship. Yeah. Outside of just like, hi, you look nice, which is what a normal person would do. Women are great at this. They're like, hey, I love your hair. I love your hair. We should be you friends. look nice. We should be friends. Yeah. And guys in streetwear, and now streetwear is mainstream. So now all guys do this. You're just like, 
nice kicks. And like, yeah, where'd you get yours? And where'd you get your Supreme shirt from New York? Yeah. And it was literally that. And we went into class and we didn't talk to each other again for a couple of days. And then I was wearing another pair of shoes and came over. He was like, where'd you get your shoes? And, you know, that's how we became friends. So at what point do you guys go, we should make clothes? Uh, that Within that year. So what started happening. Neither of you, though, other than being essentially clothes horses mm-hmm. who who like committed to the to the streetwear there was no like in your future sense of i'm gonna get into the world of fashion other than i'm I oh like no wearing. not at all same with him no same aspirations with him. Beyond no no no, just, no and what law did you want to do i was in for i was actually going in i was i'm still very big on social justice so i was kind of coming in as more uh human rights you know social work that type of an angle right um he i actually don't know he always says he's just like i never plan on being a lawyer i just was buying time which a lot of people do they go to graduate school because they're like i'm trying to figure it out and he figured it out he's like graduate school i hope they fucking put him on their poster to be like he <laughs> I figured it out <laughs> i say with ben he's the only guy who went to law school without going to law school he was like that <laughs> do you remember that movie summer school yes and at the fun, very fun. end of the summer there's a kid who shows up for the final and everyone's like who's this kid and he was like i was stuck in the bathroom the whole time right. <laughs> um that's him he never went to law school and he would show up for finals and people would be like there's only 12 people in the class and they'd be like who are you who are you and he he would just ace it. He's super smart. Um, but we were in law school, but we both knew that we weren't really trying to be lawyers. Um, I had just, it, it was 9-11 a couple years before. Up until that point, I was a freelance artist, freelance illustrator and writer and uh, couldn't get a lot of jobs after 9-11. And so I went to law school going, hey, I kind of want to, you know, subvert the system. I'm going to go in and do some like human rights work and, you know, ended up getting into a lot of debt. And so same with him. He came in going like, you know, I have all these bills to pay. We got to do something this summer. And I was like, you know, this was the first summer after our first year. And I was like, you know, I've been sitting on this idea where I want to develop a T-shirt brand because I'm an artist and I want my art to be seen. I can't get it seen by galleries. No galleries will give me the time of day. The media, the magazines are not interested. I'm just not cool or popular enough. But if I put my art into T-shirts and people walk around, like at least people will see it. Like it'll provoke conversations. Sidebar, we'll come right back to this moment. When did you know you were an artist? And if you were an artist, what the fuck were you doing going to law school? I know. Well, growing up in an Asian immigrant household, as early as I can remember, I was an artist and I loved to draw. My earliest, I have drawings from when I was like three years old and was really... um, infatuated with garfield my entire life was the fuck out of here you could draw garfield really well i can draw garfield one of the only things i could draw in this world but you start with the nose i start with the big eyes oh i always start with the nose and then i draw the eyes around it uh i learned how to draw by reading garfield comics and I learned my humor and no, writing I, from. I may start from, with the fucking nose on Garfield. I, I would. I think you you should. You can't if do you the have eyes, it. otherwise you're towing the nose yeah. on top of the already drawn eyes. Oh, I'd that's, I, that's. I would always start because that would be stripes on the face. Oval. Yeah, there's a, no how many? Oh, three on like each this. side. Yeah, and they're like, this, they're like the stripes like this. Why Garfield? I don't, well, Garfield did such a good job of licensing. Jim Davis did such yeah. a good job of licensing, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, he was probably the first real big cartoon license. And it was because of the stuck on news. Yes. Do you remember the stuffed animals? Yes. We actually did a collaboration 
uh, with, Jim with, Davis. with Jim Davis and Garfield. We did it twice. We did the first one in 2010, and then we did another one like three years ago. That is adorable. And he told us this, you know, I flew out to Muncie, Indiana, and it's like this big orange barn that he works out of. And oops, I just hit that. And uh, his, his family still worked for him. But say, I was just like, how did you start? He's like, I was just drawing this comic. It was actually about John, right? It was about John Arbuckle. And he had a cat and a dog. And by the, I think the second or third, he ran it in the local town paper in Muncie. And uh, by the third edition of that comic or this third episode or whatever, people were like, I like the cat. Can you put the cat more in the comic? And so he started pivoting the comic around the cat and everyone fell in love with the cat. And so the comic was kind of circulating, you know, getting syndicated, whatnot. And he, someone from Asia flew over and was like, we want to make these Garfields where you can stick them on the inside of the car windows, right? Like they were car culture. Ubiquitous at one Right? Point. That every car had. It yeah. was, if you, if, like the baby uh, on board sign, like a baby on board. Sticker. Right. Like, they were just. Every car you passed had a fucking Garfield. There's a joke in the beginning of, um, is it LA Story? Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. Uh, The opening scene where he's driving through the city and hits like every landmark, there's a stuck on you on the inside because that was just such an 80s thing. But they made all of their money over the next three years off of that. And he was like, that opened my eyes to what licensing was. He's just like, that stuck on you built this entire thing built the building built all the you know all my kids work for me and their families and that it came from suck on you didn't come from comics so he's just like next thing i started doing cereals and chef boyardee and blankets whatever and so i grew up in that right right? i'm like a kid in the 80s and i'm obsessed with cartoons because i just drew all day and garfield is my bed sheets and my alarm clock and my toothbrush and everywhere and so that part of Garfield I loved. I loved I learned how to draw by reading Garfield and I learned branding and licensing from that. And then I so learned you had the series. His fifth book. Yeah. His sixth oh book. I, yeah, exactly. And the gray one and <laughs> yes. the blue one and um and then I learned how to to write and storytell and my humor came from Calvin and Hobbes. So it was those it was that balance right. of those two things. So I was just always into drawing, but again, growing up with Asian immigrant parents, my parents came from Korea. They're scared shitless. They come to this country and they just want the best for their children. They leave like a war-torn country with nothing in their pockets, make it all the way here, don't know anybody, don't know the language or the culture. And then they're like, hey, we want you to be safe and secure here. And I'm like, I'm going to be an artist, right? right? And they're like, no, you're not. Right. And I'm like, please put me into an art class or I want to go to art school. And they're like, never. So Do they suppress that. I have an older brother and a younger brother. I'm middle of three boys. What, were they, what did they do? Same kind of thing with my older brother. My older brother, was he had all these different aspirations. He was really into music and whatnot. My parents were like, you're going to be a doctor. So he went to med school and God, halfway high aspirations, like so much and so much pressure yeah. built out of fear. Right. These are immigrants coming to this country who are just like, we're going to get eaten up alive here. Our children are going to starve and get beaten and be left for dead unless they find a stable job. Right. And like what's stable. What's a good job considered a successful job. Yeah. People always need a doctor. Yeah. People and, always need a lawyer. And a successful job where <laughs> an Asian person can just get in and get by because Asians, we rarely make it as CEOs or as owners of companies, founders, especially that generation. Just culturally, we were never put into those positions. Right. There's 
this, this is a whole different conversation, but because of the way that infrastructures are set up, mm-hmm. Asians are always seen as, in just greater American culture, Asians are seen as good workers, but not necessarily promoted as much as people of other races. We're always seen as like workers, but no one wants to like an Asian manager, more or less. Mm-hmm. And so our parents and that generation of parents understood that. They're like, look, you're not going to become a boss of a company. You're not going to be CEO. You're not going to become president of the United States. But a doctor is something that you can earn just by going to school. If you work hard enough, you can actually build that dream and you can keep your head down and they'll just allow you to stay here and you're not going to discriminate against you and you can have a job. And the same thing with being a lawyer. If you put in the work, it's all based on merit. You know, you get your good grades and then you can become a you can become an attorney. So doctor and lawyer were big for most Asian immigrants that were coming over at that time. And And the idea of art is like, oh, no. Art is the most fragile, vulnerable, frightening thing. It's like I always tell I always say it's like it's like for white kids. Like if you told your parents, I want to be like a race car driver, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or like I want to ride a motorcycle for a living. And they're just like, are you crazy? You're going to die. Like, that's what it was like (laughs) telling my parents. They were just like their eyes were like, he's an artist. Like, what are we going to do with this guy? He's going to starve to death. And I was like. I just want to draw Garfield all day. What's it's the only thing I'm good they're at. Like, Some guys already got that job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're like, and he doesn't look like you. And I was just like, ah, oh, shit. So I I was always told by my parents, by my teachers, and then if you just think about it, greater society, American culture. It's like, don't be an artist. It's too risky. Yeah, there's like your backup. Yeah, you know, not everyone makes it. In that yeah, world. exactly. And so everyone's telling me, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You can't make a living off of your art, your dreams, right? So and strange. especially when I mean, it comes it, to your parents. That, it is. And what, so wait, if you're 10 years behind me, they were still fill, feeding people that bullshit. Yeah. Even like 10 years after. Yeah, Good of God. course. But, you know, because of that, and because I fought so hard against it, you know, when Ben and I, we started this brand and the very first day he told me, we were months into it and he came to me and he was like, guess what? And I was like, what? He's like, I think we can, actually, we weren't a few months in, we were two years in before we turned, we were in the green. So two years in, he comes to me, he's just like, guess what? We're not in debt anymore. And we can actually pay the rent on my studio apartment where we were working out of on Venice Boulevard is 700 bucks a month. He said, we can pay the rent off of selling our T-shirts. And that moment, that day was, you know, when people say, oh, when did you know you made it? And I was just like, it was that day. Because that was the day that I was like, wait, I can actually do this for a living? I can live... My passion for a living. What the I can, fuck am I doing in law school? What am I doing? In law school? Exactly. Like <laughs> I can work on art for a living and get by and survive. That goes against everything I was ever taught. My parents were wrong. Society was wrong. My teachers were wrong. I'm actually making a living off of art, which is again going back to NFTs. Why I champion it? Because I'm watching so many young people going. I've been a starving artist for years, and I'm going to hit six figures this year, mm. right? Like, I just sold an NFT for $6,000, and I couldn't move this for $60 out of, like, hanging in my lo- local ice cream parlor. It does obliterate the notion of the starving artist. hmm Exactly. And then it and makes also, you... it's like, it's wider exposure. Exactly. Like, in terms of, you know, I was trying to explain it to, to Jason, to Jay, and it was like, you're... The whole world isn't doing it. Right. But the people that do it, like, are passionate about it. Yeah. And will spend money on it. Yes. Like, and he's like, oh, like, our stuff. I'm just like, yes. That's why it makes sense that, like, we 
lean into something like this. But mm-hmm. all right, so wait, you two guys are like at at that point, two years in. Mm-hmm. Were you still in law school that whole time? Yes. So law school's three years. Uh-huh. Uh, we're about a year to two years in at that point. Two years in, we start actually turning a profit, and so we're looking at our last year of law school, going, "We just got to finish this off. We got to take Did the you bar. Finish? We finished." Did you pass the bar? No, we took the bar, but we didn't pass because we didn't study for the bar. Well, because we company, we were running the company. It's not the aim anymore. And in the backs of our minds, we were like, we don't want the safety net. Right. If we have the bar, anytime this gets hard, we can always ditch it. We can ditch it and just go right back to her. This episode of Smodcast is sponsored by Blue Chew, man. Blue Chew. Go to BlueChew.com while I tell you about it right now. Go to BlueChew.com as I speak about it with you kids. Let me preach the gospel a little bit. The gospel of Blue Chew. Guys, it's been a hell of a year. Personally, I feel like I've aged many years over the last many months. And if you're like me, you're feeling your age more than you used to, especially in the boudoir. It's time to snap out of it, kids. Spring is here, man. It's time to get sprung with Blue Chew. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablets help men achieve harder, stronger erections to combat all forms of erectile dysfunction. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Plus, it ships right to your door in a very discreet package. The process is so simple. You sign up at BlueChew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription, man, within days. Best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's Licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? Who does, man? No problems here. Chew it, kids. Blue chew it. Blue chews sildenafil and tadalafil. They're uh, they're chewable, kids. Uh, I said phonetically. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA proudly, and they prepare and ship direct, so it's cheaper than any pharmacy, man. So if you could benefit from confidence when it's time to to perform, visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. We've got a special deal for you, our Smodcast listeners. Try Blue Chew free, free, when you use our promo code SMOD at checkout. Just pay $5 for the shipping, man. That's BlueChew.com, promo code S. M-O-D in caps to receive your first month free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the Smodcast podcast. Now, on with the show. All right, so two years after you start, you're profitable enough to live off of That's making, right. making shirts. Yeah. And you had only done shirts at that point? And how did you only sell Only t-shirts them? for the most part. Sold them. There was no e-com back then. You can build what a PayPal. This? this is 2003. You can build the shitty PayPal mm. shopping cart on your bootleg website, but people didn't trust e-com, right? Dig- digital, direct-to-consumer was not a thing. Right. And so you had to sell to physical stores or build your own store. And we did both. We ended up building our own store, which still exists on the corner of Fairfax and Rosewood here in L.A. That's the original store? That's the original store. The one that we're going to go to but and to do film. The, we're going to shoot we're gonna shoot and Little Short. Bob and, and the other, the, the talkie Bob. Bob yes. and Bobby Hundreds. Hundreds yeah. Bob. Yeah. Silent Bob and Hundreds <laughs> Hundred Bob. Um, but the, wait a second. So you were, that that's a big space. 
Yeah. Well, oh, oh, the corner. We actually started off with, so we have actually the entire wall, like yeah. there's three spaces and then the corner space. But in the we beginning, had, in the beginning just... we just had the middle space. It's 400 square feet. Um, oh, so it was good. just our office at first. That building had burned down the, the, a couple months before we moved in. They were kind of just like forcing spaces on people. So was it fulfillment as well? Like you guys mm-hmm. would send? It was Ben and I sitting in there every day. We ended up having a, an intern named Scotty who was kind of like our third and uh we had some we did fulfillment out of there we'd print like a couple hundred t-shirts pack them send them out of there i would design out of there but that turned into a clubhouse we'd smoke drink skate play soccer you know read magazines just all day and night mm. just out of that clubhouse you know like we would be there at like four in the morning people would be coming back from partying leaving like and that was just where it all happened in that little room I remember those days i know it sounds super reckless and crazy now, but but not even. But it was just like you like then your mind was blown by what you considered success. Oh yeah, and that fucking kid, like if you show him today, no, I wouldn't have been. The- I never, I never imagined any of this would end up happening. I sitting in front of you, this is not supposed to happen, right? You started off by talking about how you're like, oh, it's crazy because now people come to me and say I grew up on your stuff. For me, it's crazy the other way because I'm at a point in my career now where I'm like, I can do anything I want. Yeah. I'm going to reach out to Kevin Smith and can we make a little short together? Can we make some project product together? Like, yes. Like, wow, really? Yeah. And so the legacy preceding me now walking into rooms that part I would have never been able to imagine. I was just in Hawaii and, you know, I'm checking out of the hotel and the manager walks by and whispers to the guy who's giving me my invoice. And he's just like, don't worry, I'm going to knock off a bunch of money for you. And like, you know, we're grew up wearing clothes and stuff. And I'm just like, what? Like, wow, how did this happen? You know, th- that I never planned for. I never even thought it was a possibility. So I never desired it. People are like, how do the rich stay so rich? Yeah, that's how it happens. <laughs> exactly. <kids. laughs> <Things> like <that. laughs> he's like, he's like, I'm checking out. I'm ready to pay my bill as expected by law and shit. Yeah. I understand the social contract. But then a dude comes over and he goes, because of who you are, yeah. you're going to have to pay less. And it's yeah. like, you know, I could afford to pay more. That should be the guy. The guy should come over and be like, I grew up wearing yeah. your shit. Apparently yeah. you're doing well. We want to charge you more. Yeah, exactly. For <laughs> it should be like that. You're absolutely right. Um, all right. Who designed the logo? Was that you? I did. Yeah. Was that before the name or for what came first? Name logo. The name came first. Why the name? Well, why the name? The name the hundreds was a reference to many things. It was first of all the decade we started the brand. Um, it was oh, never, shit. yeah, it was the hundreds. We were like, this is our time. You know, we were in our tw- early twenties. We're like, these are our twenties. Like, this is the hundreds. Um, but, um, what it ended up really meaning, and a lot of this was retroactive building into the name was it, st- it stands for people. It stands for the community. Right. And so as I was writing, as like there's hundreds as yeah, hundreds of people that are into this or, you know, I was like, people's, you know, connote some type of energy. There's some kind of attraction to what we're doing. And so it represents bringing people together. And that's really the entire ethos of the brand, right? So I wrote a memoir, it came out um, a couple years ago. And halfway, th- you know, book publisher, book agent comes to me, hey, we want you to write a book. Mm. I'm like, what do, you want, what do you want me to write about? Write about what you've done. Okay. So I start writing the book. 
a lot of memoirists do this and halfway through the book you're like what am i actually doing with my life like why did i do any of this because i'm telling the story of all the answering all the questions that you're asking oh we started printing t-shirts and put in stores and Mm -hmm. i was like but why but why why did i do any of this right and halfway through the book i realized all the stories i'm telling are connected to people Um, they're they're about how relationships were bridged and built um all the friends i made along the way and all the friends that met each other because of it, the couples that met and got married and right. had kids after coming to our events and things like that. And I was like, this was always about community because I never felt like I belonged anywhere. I never felt comfortable in my own home. You know, I had like a really tough relationship with my parents and especially my dad. You know, I never felt comfortable in my own community. You know, I'm a person of color. I'm an Asian American person, just not a lot of Asians in my town. You know, I was into skateboarding and hardcore and all these fringe interests. I was listening to weird music. I was watching Kevin Smith movies. No one understood that shit back then. You know, that that really puts you on the fucking. Couldn't be like less popular of a kid. (laughs) And so, what the brand allowed me to do was it allowed me to build my own community where I finally had a home where I was just like, it's everything that I love Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes. And if you're into it, you can come in. And if you're not into it, let me teach you about it. And I will tell you why it excites me. And even if people didn't really get it, they grasped onto the enthusiasm and the passion. Have right? you done Calvin and Hobbes as well? No, it's impossible. Bill Watterson doesn't yeah, do anything, right? Does nothing. Because I was trying to explain to, uh, who was it? Jason uh, Jason and Jordan's daughter, Logan, just turned six. Yeah. And Jordan was like, uh, we went to a party for one of her classmates and it was Calvin and Hobbs themed and I was like are you shitting me like is it back like did I miss something I, I, I maybe I you know don't have my finger on the fucking no exact wait, pulse, what? But I'm like I had no awareness of Calvin and Hobbes returning and uh she said no the the mom introduced the daughter to like the big book and the kid loved it but their gift bags had Calvin and Hobbes merch in it and I was like what do you mean and it was a one of the books they still are in publication yeah um, but they, somebody had made face masks with a, you know. Oh, they just, they just printed them through a yes. knockoff site. Yeah. Which is what I said to them. I was like, there's no new merchandise. I said, no. I'll tell you what, there was never any merchandise. Like, never. unlike Jim Davis, it's, it's funny that your two influences That's, be yes. more polar opposite. They were, they hated each other. They didn't like the, each yeah. other for yeah. that reason. Like Bill Watterson just didn't do the dot. He could have made a fucking fortune making. Mm-hmm. fucking tiger dolls yeah from now until the end of time could have stuck him on windows and shit could have made it like i'm sure I've, every kid out of film school or sundance gets into this town probably pitches a calvin and Hobbes script 100 percent. and you'll never be able to do it because the creator is um just not interested anti-licensing anti-sellout he's the most pure as it gets and uh, that always you fascinated out uh, I have reached out because he had a website. He actually about a year and some change ago. Didn't he do he, the first new strip or something? He did a new strip. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what ended up happening with that. I don't know if it was just one square and that was it. But there was a web. They, there has always been a website, and I just threw there. Was just like I know it's impossible, but how can we do this? We'll do it for charity. You know, it's just one thing I have to check off the list. Right. And if you get that in the licensing game, you win because it doesn't exist. But personalities like his, I was always 
really drawn to like him, Salinger, right? These right. types of reclusive characters who shun the spotlight, buried their greatest work in a vault and died. You know, that kind of story <laughs> right. is like really fascinating for artists where you're like, much of what we do, we have to sell because we're scared because we want to make a living. We need money and we feel like if I don't have the house and all this stuff, it can get taken away. And so <coughs> I'm like, that just is so brave to me to create this thing and be like, I don't want any of the money that can come with it. It also speaks to like self-confidence and self-expression because a lot of this is like, I want to get this off my chest. I want to say something. Yeah. And it creates the conversation of like, well, once you create the art, haven't you said it? Or is it said the moment the art is consumed? Like, you know, we were having a discussion about wow. taking a film, being the first film to drop as an NFT. Yeah. And, you know, the conversation became about like, well, is it is it a film anymore? Like, right. look, if, if if you're just doing art, like, isn't a film also? He, right. What defines a film? Expression? Does it and what, need an audience to be a film? Like, like we were talking tree falls about in the if, woods if kind you of thing? had a film and you took it to the NFT world. Yeah. You know, you could do one where it's like we, you know, everybody buys a ticket and they buy the NFT. And okay, sure. Watch yeah. The movie. But what if you were just like, I'm going to take this. We're going to make a movie mm -hmm. and we're going to sell it as an NFT the way that we took clerks to sundance and sure. sold it to somebody in that case um a company that buys a movie they're not just going to put it on a shelf unless something fucking bad happens something gets canceled in some way they buy it because they want to monetize it yeah but if you're doing an nft a movie is an nft there's a chance that you know number one it could be cool for somebody because not only have you just bought a cool nft you've now bought something you can monetize mm -hmm. in the real world mm-hmm but then there's a school of thought that's like, maybe somebody just wants to be like, I don't want anyone else to see it. I bought it. I mm -hmm. don't, I'm the only person that literally owns this. Yeah. And does that mean it's Did any less meaningful? Exactly. Right. Is it like, any less meaningful I, as a film? I said what I needed to say. It's out there, but it's just not out there. Yeah. It's, this is like the Wu-Tang album. Do you remember that? Yeah, when he fucking sold it to the, the Martin Shkreli guy. <laughs> and no one gets to hear it. And I'm like, does it exist? All right. Does it, it count in their disc discography? I don't know. But it must. Like, it's a full album that we're never going to be able to hear. And they got what they wanted to say off their chests. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. When does one, when, yeah. is self, when, at what point is it self-expression? Is it the moment you create the thing? Right. Or is it the moment the thing is consumed because then the self-expression is received? Yeah. So it's, it creates this really interesting, like for, for our world, the idea hmm. is it has to be consumed. Otherwise I wasn't heard. Yeah. But you know, there's also a world where its value is in just creating the thing. Right. And then the value to something. Maybe it's else. in the purpose of what that project is. I worked on a streetwear documentary for five years that it just got shelved. The executive producer on it never got the price that he was looking for. So he just shelved it. And it's five years of my life. I really poured in this thing and the entire finished like you guys it's shot it's finished it it's done. Go. You can it premiered at the LA Film Festival in twenty eighteen or seventeen. Um, 
But the entire intent behind it was to educate and inform a generation of kids on where street where it came from, the history and Supremo and all this stuff. It was really just for them. It really was never even for me. Right. So that one to me feels unfulfilled because the intent, the purpose of it was for an audience to receive it. Whereas there are other projects of mine where I'll build collections or design things. I've worked on brands that people have never even seen to the light of the day where same kind of like Salinger style on my desktop. I have folders of complete clothing companies that are on multiple seasons, three or four seasons in where I've drawn out all the garments and I built the marketing behind it and no one's ever seen it. And I just do it because I need to get it off my chest or out of my head and I'm not doing it for anyone else's validation outside of the creative exercise of me working on it. And I'm just like, oh, that's interesting. That's what it would look like. I'll never do it in real life because I'm just not that interested. That one was for me. And then I stuff and put in the folder and bury it. Have you ever pulled anything out of that folder? Um, or like One of them on? emerged like four years ago. This brand called Washing Machine. <laughs> Uh, and I just did like two seasons of it and then I put it back into the vault because I was just like, I don't really, it had like somewhat of a lukewarm reception. There's kids who are really into it because they're like, oh, this is special Bobby. But I was just like, I, I didn't do this for anyone. I just, it's for me. And so I think there are projects in my life where it's for me. And then there are projects that are, I really do it to help other people. And the the beautiful ones are the ones that are a mix of both. Which is kind of like this project where this is such a vanity project for me, you know, growing up with Kevin Smith. But there's also so much storytelling and I am so much I can share with a younger audience who doesn't understand the Kevin Smith legacy the same way that I do. And so I can tell them like this is where even if you don't understand Kevin Smith movies, if you watch the hundreds over here, you can see how this was inspired by what you know kevin did over here and so it's all intertwined it just helps people to understand if i tell it through my lens and filter because they're like oh the way that you're explaining because i understand bobby now i understand why kevin smith works with bobby and what kevin smith means to the world um but that's an ideal collaboration to me that's um that's number one that's flattering number two it's it's fucking cool it's Throughout my whole career, I've been like, these are my influences. Yeah. And just talking about them in dialogue and fucking putting shit in the movies and whatnot. And it's like you get to do that now. Yes. In in the real world and stuff. Yeah. Um, It is. It's an audience, though, that you said is generally younger. So is there what is the line called? The hundreds. Oh, our collection together. The Hundreds by Kevin Smith, I believe, is what we called it. So what is the age of the Hundreds uh, average buyer right now? Uh, high school to early college is that. So I actually never finished that story from before. That's our sweet spot. Sometimes kids can tend to wander around as they like, I need to wear my Brooks Brothers suit or I'm going to work now. And But then a few years later, they come back. Which is also an amazing thing. So of course. the 30 and 40 year olds who are like, hey, I grew up wearing that stuff. I need something to wear on the weekends or if I'm just going out. We make normal clothes too, like button ups and pants and stuff that you can wear out to eat. Right. And so they're like, can, you have grown up stuff? I'm like, we have that too. And so we have now this really awesome thing where we have a young audience. Uh-huh. It used to only be young audience. Now we have young audience and then we have men that are my age if not older you know 30 40 50s 
that are really into the hundreds or into the collectible side. We're doing a lot with like top baseball cards right now where I'm working on a cards. And so that's a really specific like 70s, 80s guy mm-hmm. who's into that stuff. Um, you know, so we're doing like this Rick Griffin project right now. Like Rick Griffin, that's, you know, he drew for the dead. And so that generation is into the hundreds now as well as a 14 year old kid. And so we kind of now cover all of these demos. Right, right, and right. so this project is great because it hits people my age and I can speak to them, you know, laterally. Uh, but then also with the young kids who are just like, they know the legacy, they get it and they see it as like, Oh, this established film franchise. And Kevin's like, you know, this established guy in Hollywood, but I get to tell it from a perspective of me as like a 15 year old kid in the nineties and going like, this is why it was so meaningful to me because, you know, this is the first time I saw films like this that incorporated this and this type of music and humor and so much of my humor. If you watch movies, the kids in, at my work who are in their twenties, you know, in the office, they watch it and they're like, this is so Bobby. Right. Like, right. cause, and I'm like, yeah, dude. Cause I memorized all those lines, <laughs> like all those, all the vernacular that I use in my li- daily life. Like it comes from Jay, you know, like I talk like that and snoochy booshies and snoogans, snoogans and all this stuff. Jeez. Like that humor was such a big part of my adolescence like that's all we would do is watch Kevin Smith movies and learn to talk like that and tell jokes like that. So I'm like, if you didn't get that, like you're not fully going to understand my humor. You know, mm-hmm. my wife didn't necessarily, she grew up watching some of that stuff, but she didn't fiend for it. She's just always just like, your humor is so warped. And I'm like, it's all the Kevin Smith movies for like <laughs> 10 years of my formative teenage life. That's where my humor came from. So glad to know somebody was watching them other than me. <laughs> I watched them a fucking bunch. So, so the idea now is that when the line comes out, at when you guys do a drop, yeah, you it uh, it's for a window, and then once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that makes it more valuable, right? And that's a like streetwear culture, sneaker world. culture, streetwear culture. <coughs> this is very native to us. It's what we've always done. We've always wanted, you know, to make everything feel very special. And that might come from that Japanese otaku thing in the 90s where they really knew how to package product Mm -hmm. physically. Like if you bought, um, you know, like this wallet, you wouldn't just walk out of the store with the wallet. It was wrapped in tissue paper with a box and a little bow tie. And then there's a man who had gloves on who presented it to you. And so you're like, wow, this is a piece of art. I'm going to treat this with a lot of care because they obviously treated it with a lot of care. They then communicated that across all this product that they were selling that to us may have seemed like trash. Again, use Levi's, use Jordan's, but they were like shrink wrapping them in plastic, putting them up saying that's $500. And you're like, okay, I'm really going to care for that. So that idea, that specialness around product, the rarity, the limited edition aspect of it was so such a part of how we built our brand where everything we're making we're like we're only going to make 50 of these we're only going to make 100 of these and you have to come to us to get it you know there are certain items in our history where there's a shirt called the black adam t-shirt and that t-shirt there's probably only about 100 in in existence because you physically have to come up to bend and die and take one like you have to find us and i have to have one on me and you have to ask for it you know, and be like, hey, do you have one on you? And if I have one, I'll be like, yes, you can't buy that anywhere. So it's it's so much of that is about like just treating products really with a lot of care, because for us, 
we put so much effort and thought into what we do that I'm like, this isn't disposable. This isn't just a t-shirt you wear to the gym and you throw away. Like there's so much story imbued in every graphic we do, every collaboration we work on. It come from really meaningful, deep places within our lives. And so if we treat the product like that and we only make so much and we don't mass produce them, you know, we don't mark it off at sale. We don't treat it like it's junk, but we're just like, hey, if you get this, like you're really lucky and we want people to feel that. And so when they wear it at their schools and people are like, how do you get that? How'd you get that? There's only like 10 of those. And like, yeah, like I waited, I put my time in, I, I waited in line or I did the research or I, you know, I played the game and I got it. And so that was just what the entire <laughs> brand was established upon as well as greater streetwear um, has been doing that. And now that's kind of trickled down to everything. Everything is now built around this rarity, limited edition lineup culture, right? You go and buy like makeup and perfume down to, um, you know, iPhones and especially like vinyl figures, collectibles, toys, comic books, trading cards. Now everything has that. And whereas to us, that was just always a part of the game. We wanted people to just really treat our stuff with, you know, and it's a little bit pricier for that reason, reason too, because... We don't make a lot of it. So the minimums, it costs more to produce this stuff. You know, we're not like making 50,000. So we don't get a price break. Right. So because it costs more, people are like, wait, your shirts are like $40. I can just go buy one at the gas station for $10. And we're like, yeah, but that $10 gas station t-shirt, everyone can get. Right. This one, only a few people can get. You know, and so that's the difference. Is there an aftermarket like with sneakers? Yes, there is. So um, like this shirt yeah. that you were like, if you find me and I'm fucking carrying it. Yeah. Well, the, the cool thing about our audience. <coughs> they don't sell them. They don't sell it. But they they flex it. I they would flex it. Because yeah. what's the point of having one of 100 shirt unless you could be like, fucking look exactly. at this. Exactly. And that's part of the story, too, because they had to meet one of you mm-hmm. to get it. Yeah. And it's a creates a story for them as well where they're like, you know, I got this fucking shirt. Yeah. Like it's an adventure story. It's a mini version of the Goonies. Yeah, totally. Like, I literally had to find a guy yeah. and fucking ask him for it and say the secret words and he gave me it and that's why I had it's this. A, it's totally it's that. It's a story that not everyone gets to tell. So yeah. instantly it creates a bond with a garment. Mm-hmm. That I'm sh- I'm sure like even if you're like oh, there's only fucking one of 10 of these that I can, you can find in the world. That you're not like, and I'm selling it. Yeah. It's the fabric of your life. And so if you take that meaningful experience and you apply it to a kid who's 15 years old, where they are feeling everything at that moment and all those memories they'll retain for the rest of their life, we are investing and burying, burrowing ourselves in such a a critical point in their life, yeah. right? And so those memories around the brand, like talk about Goodwill around the brand, people grew up going like, man, that moment of time, like that's when I was having sex for the first time. That was the first time I smoked weed when I was wearing your shirt. So we hear those stories a lot. Oh, I met my girlfriend or I broke up with my girlfriend. My girlfriend gave me that as a birthday gift. Like they remember, like I don't remember what happened in my 20s, but I'll tell you everything that happened when I was 16. You know, like I remember the first time I watched Chasing Amy. I remember who's, which theater it was in. I remember the first time I got on video who I watched it with. Like like what's happening in your brain is, I forget what's happening. It's like going from like, frontal lobe to whatever your your brain is literally flipping at that time which is why teenagers are like literally kind of crazy people mm. but the memories just get so cemented and we are a part of that you know and so people just end up 
they get our brand tattooed on them, right? It's like, that's a thing. It's in the hood. It's kind of like a, a rite of passage. Travis Scott, YG, a bunch of rappers have our logos, that Adam Bomb character like tattooed on them. And it signifies this certain chapter of their life that they don't want to forget, you know, is it's the hundreds. And so to me, it's just so much. The name of my book is This Is Not a T-Shirt because it was never just about the clothes. Right. Right. It was about these stories and the community and the relationships and the friends. But I really couldn't tell you, like, most of the clothes that we like, I see people wearing our shirts and jackets and our jeans and stuff. And I'm like, I don't even remember designing that. Are you I'm, shitting me? Yeah. I'm like, I don't remember because we've made so much stuff, like thousands of T-shirts designs over the years, like so many pieces of cut. And so then I'm like, I don't remember picking this fabric out for that or constructing the garment that way at all. But okay. But it had to be you because there's only you and Ben. Yeah, exactly. And especially in the first chapter of the brand, I designed everything, right. everything top to bottom, like literally just came from me. But I don't even remember anymore because it was never really about the clothes. Like the clothes was just the vessel, right? right for me to just meet people. people. But I remember all the kids. Like kids walked up to me and they're like, remember me? And I'm like, oh my God, you were like 12 years old and now you're like a man with a beard and carrying a baby. And that's beautiful, you know? So that to me, that's what I get off on. I'm like, thank God I have clothes. If it hadn't been clothes, it'd be vitamin supplements. If it wasn't vitamin supplements, maybe it would have been cars or whatever. I would have used something, but I was just such a lonely kid growing up that was so marginalized and on the outside. And I was just like trying to find friends and I used the brand to do that. I used streetwear. I used the hundreds to do that. And now, like, I'm surrounded with, you know, I go to a hotel in, in Hawaii and, <laughs> and you know, you the guys out. just give me a wink. And I'm like, it's like Fight Club, you know, we're like we're everywhere. This is a story that I'm intimately <coughs> familiar with. You and yeah. I have lived an insanely similar life in that way. Yeah. You create something that has an insane amount of goodwill around it. You do it with your head down, not going like, wait, how does this get like like that? Yeah. Because you're doing your fucking thing. Exactly. Your artistic expression. And then it just keeps paying off as yeah. you kind of go through life. Yeah. That, you know, this sounds, it's a word that's overused, but like there's authenticity to it mm -hmm. um, where people are like, you know, and also I'm, maybe this fucking dates me, but like, or maybe it doesn't date me as much as shows that I live a life on the fucking road doing shows, but like 40 bucks for a t-shirt doesn't sound that crazy. I know, right. Yeah. If you're at a fucking show yeah, and you're buying that t-shirt yeah. for the exact reason you said, it's yeah. a fucking memory. It's not like I need to own the shirt because I'll be cold in the summer without yeah. a fucking layer. You're like, Oh my God, it's got the dates on the back. And I was at yes. one of those dates and I fucking went this night and blah, blah. Of course I'm going to want this shirt. Yeah. And they buy it for an emotional investment. Yeah. Not just, you know, a practical reason or stuff. And, and I guess like that in, in that way, the job gets insanely more satisfying as a designer because mm. you're committed to smaller numbers. So you're like, all right, we're done. Now we do this. Mm -hmm. All right, now we're done. We'll do this. Yeah. Job never gets boring. No. Because you're like, oh, we can always like reinvent. You have to reinvent. You have That's to reinvent model. all day, every day. You have to constantly adapt. Unbelievable. And uh, so, based on all that, now yeah. I'm insulted. It took you this fucking long to get to me. <laughs> I've tried multiple times. It was never the right time, though. It, it was always coming through Jake. Jake was always trying to facilitate because Jake is a part of our crew, 
and he Jake was, Richardson. Jake Richardson. And so Jake was. Well, just you so are just, absolutely right. He yeah. for years has been hitting me up, being yeah. like, "Hey man, you, uh, these cats make clothing and yeah. blah blah blah." But uh, we were. Processed. I was doing it in in the wrong way because the very first time I think I reached out, which was like ten years ago. I was trying to do like I needed clerks and mall rats and you're just like, hey, it gets complicated because of the studios. Other people own them. Other people own these names. And I was just like, ah, I'm not like I didn't know how to process that. But then you guys did such a good job with your pop ups and movies and everything. Though I was just like, OK, now I know how to we can pivot around this whole thing. It was amazing when I got the call and I was like, what? Like <laughs> I've heard of them and not in the. <clears throat> uh, you know uh, oh my god they're the starbucks like <laughs> heard of them but i'm like i fucking know what that is i know there's mm. hipness to it yeah like i know and there's there's edge there's you know and so once you guys came over and you were like this is what we're thinking about doing and you just like hmm. it's like the dream line like i'm honestly like glad it didn't happen 10 years ago yeah i'm saying i need it more now yeah exactly you know what i'm saying like my shit's yes. old son yeah so 10 years ago i wasn't even in like uh the place where i am here. this is so fucking strange like this goes for everybody because the condition you just described yeah a motherfucker grows up wearing hundreds then puts it away because he's like i gotta grow up and then eventually fucking goes like, uh, you know what? Everything worked out. I'm going to wear the hundreds again. And yeah, fucking goes back exactly. to wearing the Exactly. It's that. Describes perfectly the same thing, the same relationship I've had with like my view of universe, my characters. Mm -hmm. Like at one point, bam, it was like everything. It's yeah. all I did. Then I was like, I got to grow up. And I put it away and did everything but that shit. And now I'm in an age where I'm like, that shit just made me happy. So I love that. So, like, that's where Jane Saw and Bob Reboot comes from. That's where Clerks 3 comes yes. from. That's where Mall, Twilight of the Mall. This is, for so many artists, I feel like this is Nirvana. I To reach hit, the place where you're like, yes. you, know, you know what I refer to it as? Remember when we were kids? <clears throat> probably more for me. You might not even be born when you did it. But Leonard Nimoy wrote a book, uh -huh. I Am Not Spock. And, you know, fucking, he was Spock. Yeah. We all know he was Spock. But yeah. his book was like, hey. I am not Spock. And then years later, he wrote a book that was called I Am Spock. Really? Yes. And I thought that showed incredible growth because when he this wrote is, I Am Not yes. Spock, it was very much like, stop fucking giving me the fingers, uh, you know, spread apart and shit. Like, that's a dopey character I played. And I'm, I'm capable of a lot more, blah, blah, blah. And then got to a place in life where he was like, I'm totally fucking comfortable yes. with Spock. Yeah. And not because it's like, it pays my fucking bills. He built a legacy. He did other shit. He directed movies and whatnot. Huge fucking movies, by the way. Yeah. He directed Three Men and a Baby. It's Leonard Nimoy. Did he really? Fucking Leonard Nimoy. With the ghost stand-up character yes. in the back? That's why, because he was creepy. Yeah. Like, in search of creepy. <laughs> but regardless, he, he built a thing where he got, you know, oh, to a know place with, with Spock and Star Trek where he's like, yes. oh, my God, fucking, I can't deny yeah. the influence it's had, the impact it's had. Yeah. You know, maybe in the beginning, maybe in the 80s, <clears throat> you could sit there and be like, these kooky kids, who the fuck watched this shit? Like, I'm just glad they're having these conventions and shit. But then after like 30, 40 years of that shit, yeah. you got to be like, look, this ain't no pig in a poke. Like, this shit legit means something to people. And yes. they, he's probably met same way that. You and I have met people who are like, oh, my God, let me tell you the story of why what you do means so much mm -hmm, to me. Mm -hmm. 
compound that or fucking multiply that by fucking 10,000. Leonard Nimoy probably heard for years people yeah. going like fucking Star Trek and the Federation and fucking Spock and the philosophy and probably got to a place where he was like, <clears throat> I'm not embarrassed by this anymore. Yeah. He's like, I'm glad I did it because fucking yeah. like it, it would turned out to be like one of the greatest decisions, blah, blah, blah. So I too reached a place where I'm like, <clears throat> this makes me happy. Yeah. And, you know, the only reason I put it away was because I thought I was expected to do something else. And now I'm like, you know, after the heart attack, I'm like, I could fucking die tomorrow. Do I want to die trying to fucking like break new ground or do I want to like die with my characters? Do I want to die doing mm. the thing that I love doing, you know, like extending the story? Like, not just being like, here's a fucking brand new story, but being like, okay, remember that story? It's connected to this, and we're going forward and shit. Like, not to interrupt, not for money, right? But this is what I was going to say. It's not for you. It's not because you love it as much as everyone loves it. Nah, I feel like it really comes down to selfish, like, I love it. Yeah. Now I'm like, things are now I've under, and now I've the confidence enough, like, like you guys, where you're like, I know we got this many people. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not. You're, you're, it's not like you're. You guys are like, man. We're trying to fucking sell a million of an item. Exactly. Yeah. So you're like, I know we can sell this many, and the cooler it gets, the easier it gets to fucking do it, and blah blah blah. So to me, I'm like, look, I know I got this many people interested in this bullshit. That means if I keep this down to a certain budget level, yeah, I can tell the stories that I want to tell. The only sacrifice, quote unquote, is like. You don't get as paid as much to do it, mm. but like I'm going to get paid in emotional satisfaction more than anything else, which is way better than fucking loot. But also it trickles down beyond just the actual making of the thing. You know, these movies pop ups have been crazy easy to do. You know how much easier they're going to do after Clerks 3? You know how many fucking T-shirts will sell? How many different yeah. license was, licenses will kick open? So, like, doing the thing trickles down and creates all this other storytelling yeah. as well. But primarily, that's just to justify the obnoxiousness yeah. of being like, I want to I mm. tell this make-pretend story mm. that nobody's asking for, that, that financially is not being demanded. It's not a sequel to a fucking, you know, Marvel movie or some such shit. But... Hmm. I'm going to I'm going to do it. There's also like just the ego and arrogance that it takes to be like, I've got a good idea for a story. Give me 20 million dollars like has always sat uneasy with me. So now being at a place where I'm like, um, look, like my whole career early on, they'd be like, you got to work for the widest possible audience. Like it's a stupid story. And I tell it all the time, but we're doing a uh, mall rat script. Yeah. And in the mall rat script first draft or something. <clears throat> Uh, Silent Bob, Jay, or, you know, uh, James, Silent Bob puts his head through the changing room in yeah. one of the scenes with, with Joey. With Joey. And then um, one of them was we her changing, we cut to the other side, and, like, they're looking through the wall, Porky style, and jerking off. And one of them <laughs> fucking fires, and up it goes, and over, and you hear, ah! And they go running out. And so they're on, you know, still gross. And I'm not saying like, God damn it, my proudest moment. <laughs> but in any event, it was in the script. And then the next time you saw Gwen, yeah, her hair was all matted because presumably it landed in her hair. And I remember an exec at Universal, uh, uh, Nina Jacobson, was just like, 
Kevin, that's terrible. Like nobody, you're going to pull everyone out of the movie if you do some gag where there's cum in somebody's hair. A couple years later, it was something on the about Mary poster on the poster. My friend, not even like, you know, you're watching that movie and it's like American Pie where you see the kid fuck the pie, but they can't put that on the poster. They literally put Cameron Diaz with like a cum shoehorn hair <laughs> on the poster. It's part of the marketing. It's how they sold it to like America and their kids. So like, you know, there's that aspect of, of oh, like, wow. well, I might have broken new ground. I'm, I'm not sure it's the proudest new ground, but it's like my instinct was like, oh, let's do something that hasn't been done before. Then I was made to feel a little bit dirty about it. And so I was like, I'll take it out. And then somebody else went on to do it. But more important, important part of the story <laughs> is that her her reasoning, why I was like, oh, you're right, was she was like, um, Kevin, this is going to take a lot of people out of it. Like this, this doesn't make mm. it fun for people. And don't you want to reach the widest possible audience? What's wrong with that? She was talking to independent mm. filmmaker who had just made clerks and going, what's wrong with trying to reach the widest possible audience there's no crime there and so i was like oh okay and out the joke went and then like i said fucking Farrelly brothers did it better anyway but regardless like and did something completely different but proved that it would have worked mm -hmm. you know again not something that i'm like i'm bitter about <laughs> it to this day but like the idea of working for the largest possible audience never sat very yeah, well with me. same much rather work for for my audience and yeah. when you, i did that there was a whole 10-year period of felt like where a lot of folks online would be very dismissive of me like oh he just works for his audience and my point was always like look spielberg works for his audience it's yeah. just way fucking bigger but yeah. like i don't know any of us don't work for their audience yeah like if you do if you're one of those people it's like i'm fucking swinging for the fences and hoping that people are going to fucking show up god bless but i'm like I, I the moment i found out what these people are here and they're sticking around and like they like what i do and they like the consistency and they want to see more and they're involved mm. and not only do they like the movies but they because of the website they're deep in my life and mm. like they know about this and they've met my friends and i can record podcasts and introduce them to people that i think are interesting and shit like that like all of that is more appealing than reaching the widest possible audience. Yeah. Playing to my audience is like, I'm fucking content, man. So like now making more view of universe movies, like I don't have to defend it. You know, now I'm just like, well, as long as I keep it cheap, it's going to be all right. We'll do yeah. it. Cause I know I can sell to my audience. Same yeah. like with you guys in the shirts. What is just out, out of curiosity where like whoever's listening to this, like is you know the smodcast audience they ain't fucking kids so there'd be people more my age or people who've been like around my stuff for years do they have any chance of getting this shit or, <laughs> or is it gone by the time they hear this like the drop uh, is on 420 the drops on 420 when do you think this is gonna air um well i mean you tell me it could even be before on whenever i i think it'd be great if we did it before done so yeah. we'll put it up like uh this this coming week okay by this weekend so that gives what what, what will they do how do they do it like these i'll be honest so, with you I'm, i hope i'm not profiling my audience but i doubt yeah. any of these cats know how to access this <laughs> and this stuff is fucking amazing and i'm not saying like it breaks my heart that it's gonna fall into the hands of kids <laughs> that don't even know what it is 
but, but like, it might happen. Yeah, that's that's and, kind and, of the goal. Bobby's been very upfront about that since the beginning. Because, like I said in the intro, is like when we first met and started talking, I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll push it on my Instagram. And he looked at me in that kind of like, you know, somebody who throws a fucking dollar bill in the you know uh, worldwide fucking cancer relief fund and goes like this will help and you know whoever runs the fund just gives you a look like oh bless your heart that'll yeah i'm sure that'll help like his point was right away there's an audience that's gonna buy this and some of them and he goes i'll be honest with you most of them probably weren't even born when you did this shit he's like some of them may know it from their parents he's going but a lot of them are going to be introduced to it yep through this us. line yeah and i was like oh my god fucking that is tremendous yeah <laughs> like you know normally somebody has to pay for that kind of like make me relevant so it was so nice for somebody to be like we're gonna make your clothes we're gonna put, make clothes that have your flavor on them and we're gonna sell them to kids who may wear them yeah and never well they'll know the story they'll wear it because it's important to you exactly and not because it's like, that's my, the story of my life. Exactly. Like, that's amazing. But because it's that's important like curating, to me, cur- it becomes. Curating your fandom. Yeah. Into your line of work. Yeah. Do what yeah. you love. And yeah. get paid doing it and shit. That's the fucking American and I dream. Get not to... becoming a doctor or a fucking lawyer. Yeah. It's how parents feel with their kids of educating them on the things that they grew up on like you sit down and watch a movie and you're like this is why this movie's so good or garbage fell kids and you go like we were opening garbage fell kids and baseball card packs for my kids the other day and i was like this is the gum and this is you know getting to do that all over the i do it every day with our audience except Mm. it's like you know hundreds of thousands of kids around the world who are learning about this for the first time but yeah because it's meaningful to me because it's important to the hundreds they buy it because they're like well it means something to them and it looks cool and it's designed well and there's good storytelling around it so i want it because these guys are clearly passionate about it and they care so much about it that i care it's the same with any artist right who is maybe like a music artist who's writing a certain song and you know talking let's say about a certain political stance and because that artist cares so much about what they're singing or rapping about like you can't help but also buy into that because right, you're right, like, right. I trust this person. And that's the goodwill I'm talking about is that the there's so much trust built into the brand and, and me and Ben and the people that work on this company every day that our customers are like, I don't get it. But because you give it the cosign, I'm going to, by blind faith, buy into that as well. And then look, I'll at least look into it. I'll at least educate myself on the subject. Um Elo- yeah. eloquently academic or academically eloquent is like that's that's what you come across as an artist yeah i'm like <laughs> man you can really articulate shit that like you know i'm like oh yeah i i, I we just <laughs> called that making a thing like like the terminology is is like fascinating to me and i'm still mm. trying to absorb some of them but like it's it, it's it's art it's commodifying mm. art which is what the world of art has always done it's always been this yeah. is valuable yeah here's why here's why it's a gatekeeper or a tastemaker saying that this art is valuable for these reasons because we said so because all our friends say so and we're gonna set the price at this much because you trust us and you trust the brand right like we we 
we steered you in the right direction the first time you bought that art from us and it went up in value, right? So we are doing that again here with this one. And the longer you're around, there's more trust reinforced within the brand, within us. So we've been around for, again, 18 years and kids are like, hey, almost every time you put me onto an artist, like three or four years later, they blew up. You know, like we do that all the time where we're like, I was talking about NFTs in like January and then by March, everyone's just like, oh, yeah, I learned about this all because of you and you turn out to be right about that. Um, better examples would be like certain artists. Like we work a lot with Kenny Scharf, who is, you know, he's one of Keith Haring and Basquiat's boys back in the day. And is that right? we did a lot of these projects with him because we just love Kenny. Like we just believe in his art. And then uh, Dior, high fashion brand, you know, run by a guy named Kim Jones right now. But they did a big project with him at the end of last year. And everyone was just like, oh, so my The Hundreds Kenny Sharp stuff now is more valuable, more precious because now Dior has co-signed him. And so, you know, we do our best to do our research, put people on to the right things. You know, everyone trusts our restaurant recommendations because we're big foodie people. We have a food festival also. So we're always telling people to eat in certain places and they tag us in photos and they're like, oh, my God, best taco I've had in L.A. And like, thanks, because I found it through Bobby and Ben. So we're always trying to we're big sharers like right. Ben and I. We just we cannot appreciate it just on its own. If it's just us, we can't be selfish about it. So every time we share it and it makes other people happy, it just makes us happy, you know, and uh and it's also it's, just good for the brand because people are like, who mm-hmm. fucking told me about this? Oh, yeah. fucking Bobby Hunt. Yeah. So every time I tell them about something that they don't know, what and you're it's not about, selling all the time no, either. You're I'm like, not. Well, you're selling joy, which yeah. is like, do you like to feel good? Go to yeah. this place. Yeah. But it's not, there's no kickback. There's no percentage. It's just no. fandom. It's just, yeah, exactly. So in you, they, they recognize, they, fans of yours can recognize your fandom of other things. Which yes. You create and, and bring to the line with all the, we we always say that we're we're fans first and that is another distinction between us and a brand like supreme and many other brands i'm not saying james who owns supreme is not a fan but we've been very upfront about the fact that ben and i are still very much customers streetwear sneaker enthusiasts hypees fuckboys like the same type of kid as a 17 what is a fuckboy a fuckboy (laughs) fuckboy is kind of a pejorative now but it was used um about these kind of man boys who are obsessive about collecting clothes and stuff. And it's silly, you know, that I was going to ask do that this. before when you were just describing about like the person that's like, oh, shit, this Dior line makes my fucking hundreds version of yeah. this guy more valuable. These are thoughts of a high school kid. These are thoughts of grown men. But grown men, that makes sense to me. But do high school kids think high like school this? kids think like that, too? Yeah. Cause they're, my kid is not really into clothing at all. My older son, but he's always talking about like Gucci or, you know, cause it comes up in rap songs right, and music right. he listens to. He's just like, daddy, that, that woman has a Gucci bag. That's cool. Right. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, so they're more sensitive to brands than we were. There was also what streetwear also did in American culture is that it got a lot of boys, young men into fashion and being that's what obsessive I'm about clothing like because the way you talk about it and shit i'm like wait yeah they there's actually, a whole community of kids that yeah give a and fuck. it's not just the community i think it's the mainstream now where when we were growing up for boys to be into their clothes into their looks and do their hair 
it was, you know, speaking of pejoratives, there was a word for it when, when more men started getting into their looks. It was uh, metrosexual. Do you remember this yeah, word? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was like from the, from the early box. 2000s, yeah, yeah. right? This word or metrosexual, hundreds, which was, yeah, in the hundreds, because uh, people were like, oh, straight men being into like doing their hair and like, you know, working on their skincare and like wearing nice clothing, they're metrosexual, which was, kind of like this harmful connotation that they were like more or less gay for right. being into their fashion and their clothes. Well, you know, f- fast forward to that conversation with Ben and I looking at our sneakers. Sneakers were the perfect entry point for young straight men to get into fashion. That's how you guys got involved without... in a metrosexual relationship. <laughs> exactly, because <laughs> sneakers weren't fashion. All right. Sneakers are... Even when we design sneakers, sneakers design in, in working on them, it's almost like product design. It's like you're building a, you're designing a refrigerator or a car or like walk, uh, a CD player or whatever, like back in the day. Now it's like a sneaker designing that it's not fashion. It's a utilitarian functional piece of, um, attire. And so to be into clothes, to, to be into sneakers was not like, I'm not into clothes. I'm into sneakers. I, you know, like. Right. I'm into collecting sneakers. It's a collectible. It's like a baseball card, man. Right. Like I'm not into that for I'm not trying to look sexy or cute or anything. And so but once sneakers started blowing up, then people are like, well, we need kind of we need some like rare special edition clothes to go with it. We can't just wear a gap t shirt with a really cool pair of Jordans. Those are off. So what's the cooler version of a shirt? I guess it's a Supreme shirt, but I'm not wearing it because it's form flattering or it goes well with my complexion or anything like that. I'm wearing it because of the brand. So streetwear has been this like constant denial. It's a constant denial of like, look, you just want to look good. You know, you're into your vanity and you want to be attractive to a a girl or a guy or whatever it is you're trying to attract. By the selfie generation, because it's like when growing up, whatever you wore every day. Yeah was not being photographed by anybody exactly let alone yourself it's true but we have an entire generation of kids that have grown up showing off what they're wearing and slowly learning like yes well, i can't wear that like exactly I came from walmart like, like did i get enough likes on it yeah. like we could we could dress like idiots growing up we didn't know what people thought in our heads we're like this is cool right. right like this is cool to dress like this but imagine if every day you had a score of what people thought of your outfit oh my god like how who could grow up with that kind of pressure that's why it must be comforting for them to find community to find friends exactly in the hundreds because it's like I'm going to wear this and I know there's a bunch of people that, that are going to be like, that, oh, that's fucking That's dope. cool because yeah, Ooh, it's I'm safe. guaranteed to have yes. their community and that's their base. Yeah. Meanwhile, they might just catch people in the real world who are like, cool, what is that? And then exactly. they get to be like, oh, I'll tell you what it oh, is. Yeah. It's the hundreds and the story begins. Yeah. Like it's passed on like a, yeah. like a virus. And you feel like because you're in the know that you are above you know that you are ahead of this other person you're like oh you don't know about this you don't know like let me tell you you because kids don't like that must be a valuable now a valuable commodity or a valuable currency because when we were kids the version of that was or at least from my generation maybe your generation not so much but like uh, i remember being able to pass around a fucking copy of monty python and the holy grail Mm -hmm. And that gave you like credibility. Yes. Like, oh, oh, watch this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just make sure I get it back. Yeah. But uh, you <laughs> and know, you never got it back. <laughs> never did. Now you just send somebody a link. <laughs> yeah. But like that kind of went away with the like you know easy access to a yeah. link or whatever the fuck. And it's very hard to 
um, hip somebody to something they don't know about because there's so much marketing and so much availability yeah. in the world of like streaming and whatnot. But being able to create community, create friendships based on mm. like we we we're tribal. We wear this, yeah. And other people are going to dig it, and now other people outside of this might be into it, and then it grows and it grows. That's right. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. It was not the plan; just organically happens. The way you speak about it, in terms of the terminology you use to describe your world, like uh, feels like mm. somebody who has written uh, the the field book <laughs> essentially on the subject matter and stuff. But yeah, it wasn't a pre plan. It just something you had to learn every step of the way and create essentially yeah of course yeah we were still to this day we don't we never had a business plan or a mission statement in creating this company we still don't you know when people are like we're gonna be in five years ten years coming i'm like i don't know i just do what i do every day i feel like nothing's changed since i was 23 years old i'm 41 now so lucky. and i still feel like i'm it's just me and ben even though we have a company of like 100 people running around i still feel like it's just me and ben sharing ideas working on things here and there whatever we want to work on if i want to work today on a t-shirt if i want to write an essay today if i want to work on a video thing i can do whatever i want um and it, these are all just chapters in the story of Bobby and the, in the story of the hundreds. And that was probably my my second biggest takeaway from the book is that, you know, all we're really doing is just adding chapters to this story. And so, so much of it is about timing where there are goals of mine that I haven't met that I've wor been working on for 20 years and I still haven't met. There are things that were goals of mine that I accomplished in like 30 minutes but they take equal place in the story, mm. right? And so a lot of kids come to me and they're like, hey, I'm trying to get this thing done. It's not working. You know, I've been working on this thing for six months. And I'm like, there are projects. I worked on a, a Roger Rabbit project with Disney, which is a disaster because they split up that property, right? It was like Warner, Disney, Universal, Amblin, mm. uh, King Features all came together to make Roger Rabbit. And then they like cut the baby up after and they were like, no one can ever do anything with it again unless you get everyone else to sign off on it. So I was just like, that project took me like 14 years to do. And then Jesus. it finally happened. Whereas I do like a Kevin Smith project, it takes like one year, right. you know, or six months. And, but they're both meaning, they both have equal weight in the story, right? So like the timing aspect of it doesn't really matter at all. It's like things that were happening in 2003 that were like a blip, like five minute conversations are just as impactful as like a two hour conversation I had with Kevin Smith in 2021. So that's all I'm doing every day is like, I think I was always in a rush when I was younger. I was just like, oh, I have all these things I need to do and it's not happening fast enough because that's what young people do right. and think like all the time how soon is now so how, how soon is now and now i'm just like i just focus on what i want to do today and, you know i get my projects done and I, they just accrue and they build and they add to this assemblage of what the hundreds is and my career is but i just wanted to circle back real quick to mm -hmm. your point too about finding happiness and joy in where you are and mm. i think i'm entering that phase now in my life and career and you know the in my 20s i was building this thing and i became this thing in my early 30s i was just like i don't want to be known as a streetwear guy and 
I have this line in my book of like on my tombstone, I'm going to just be, oh, that guy, he drew the cartoon bomb. And that's all he'll ever be known for, right. you know? And so you're talking to the clerks guy. I get yeah, it. yeah. And so for like 10 years, we did, we, we did, I designed a new logo and we stuffed that character. And is that right? Yeah. And everyone would be like, Hey, I want to work with Adam bomb when they, we'd work with collaborators. And I was just like, I don't want to work with him. He doesn't represent us. He's a mascot. He's not a logo. I hate when people call him a logo. I'm like, he's a mascot. That's like a movie. That's not me, you right, know? Right. And, um, and then in the last few years, I have just gotten so comfortable with it because it brings so many people happiness when right. they see the character. And then I think about what he's done for me. Like, I used to uh, say, like, oh, he's my worst enemy. I hate him. I feel like I work for that character all the time. And, like, he's the worst boss. <laughs> and so like even my kids know in the house there's this like daddy hates adam bomb like that's his enemy you know and i'm like yeah no matter what i can write a best-selling book and all people want to talk to me about is the fucking bomb thing and right. like i drew that like at two in the morning one night you know like i didn't even think about it and that's all people <laughs> care about and i'm like that's not what it's just it's not just about the drawing right like right. that just that thing just embodies like everything that i've done and who i am as a person all the relationships all the conversations i've had they all go into this thing and it means a lot to people and it means a lot to me like i I would be honored honored now to have it on my tombstone right Mm -hmm. to say like this guy drew this because it really does encapsulate my life you know and reaching that level of not just acceptance, but like and really embracing what that meant over the last like couple of years. The pandemic really helped me to see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Man, it's brought me so much peace. You've you've kind of worked through your Bill Waterson to arrive yes. at your Jim Davis exactly. with Adam Bomb. Exactly. You're just like, you know what? Yeah. Like, I get it. This should be stuck on fucking yes. car windows and exactly. It will and bring there's joy. both of those can exist. And I know a lot of brand people, especially in streetwear, most designers who with who garnered the most respect take the bill watterson route mm. i'm just not wired like that mm-hmm. and a lot of those people who aren't wired like that and keep following that path i can tell they're tortured they get very bitter mm. because you're watching all these young kids come in and making all this money and live these really lavish and complex lives and they're just like still stuck to their integrity and they're like it never paid off and i'm upset about that and I'm just, I don't know. I think there's a way to do that and be happy. I never saw it the way that I'm doing it now. I'm just so much at peace. I love what I do every day. I love that people love what I do every day. And I know my audience. I know it's not, you know, in the same way, my mantra was always, I don't want to be for everyone. I want to be for someone. I just mm. need, honestly, one person. Mm. Like I just want the the very first time I saw a person, a stranger wearing our clothes out in public that had no relation to us, not like a friend who I gave a shirt to, but someone who's like that meant as much as when I go and speak in front of 500 fans, you know, and I'm like doing a thing. I'm like, it feels the same. Right. I just need the one person to be like, hey, I see you. I get you. I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm like, that's all I need is just one. So, so like, the answer to the self-expression is 
one could sell a movie as an NFT. Yes, you could. <laughs> as long as one person was appreciated. As long as like, one person. I feel seen. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> self-expression happens when there's at least an audience yeah, of one. Of one. It's not when the, uh, the artist makes the self-expression. You're not complete until the expression's heard. <laughs> you need a minimum of one. In most cases, it would be best if you only had one. Yes. Because it's a 50-50 shot of being like, I was absolutely accurate for that self-expression. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. exactly. Um, where, once again, where will an old man okay. if, be able to On 420, yes. April 20th, 2021, on our website, thehundreds.com, mm-hmm. right at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Oh, so this is just like Sneaker World, right? Where yeah, it's like and you have open. to. Sometimes we can't calibrate it exactly at 9, so sometimes it's like 859, 858. Um, if you really want like to, to be notified right away, we have an app, the hundreds app. You can buy through the app as well. Uh, download the app and like you'll get the push notification, mm. uh, right when we drop it. Um, but those are probably the best ways to do it. They're for tw- on April 20th at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. When, um, when, so nobody's seen anything yet. No, when I sneak drop, peek the, it, pen, the chain. Yeah, the I, I, which I was like, holy shit. The Buddy Christ on Easter Day. But no one has seen the product yet. In fact- Is that what you guys do generally when you do yeah. a drop? You're like, surprise, and it all happens. We'll release images of it the about the week before we'll start dropping the lookbook and product shots and lifestyle flats of the, of the apparel. And then on the release day, we'll just be like, here's everything in its entirety. Yeah. Incredible. And just so intricately, like, kind of pieced together. Um, yeah. And, but obviously tried and true over a period of nearly fucking yeah. 20 years. Yeah. This is a lot of trial and error over 18 years of doing drops and doing it in different ways. And we're still constantly learning. You know, we had a drop on Sunday night. We did a project with CryptoPunks. CryptoPunks were the first NFT. And we made these purple hats. They wanted to make, because some of their punks were purple hats. Mm-hmm. And we made 50 hats with a CryptoPunk on it. And they sold out in literally seconds. And there were thousands of people on the website trying to get it. And there's only 50 hats. Like the punks guys were like, we only want to make 50. We don't want to make a ton because we want it to feel special. And I was like, that's really tight, but okay. And those hats now are on eBay for thousands of dollars now. They're like two to $3,000 a hat. How much was the purchase price? 50 bucks. <laughs> so let's do the math. The mark up there. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about in the millions. Yeah. Good God, man. That's a really specific buyer, a crypto whale type of buyer who's spending that kind of money. So, but even that, we learned a lot in terms of like, because we had a lot of complaints of, you know, this sold too fast or some people were buying multiple. Yeah, because and, in order to appease the collaborator, you're like, okay, we'll do this. Exactly. But and you I'm do like, it. And my... then the audience is like, hey, man, fucking that ain't fair. Yeah, that's not fair. And I'm like, it wasn't really our choice. Right, right, right. But um, typical, very classic streetwear strategy is you make the 50 people happy to piss off you know, thousands of enemies. Like you can't, you know, like that social network line about you can't make a few friends without making 500 enemies right. or whatever it is. It's, it's that in street where you're constantly making people mad, but because you upset them so much for the next one, they're on it. And right. then they buy deeper because they're like, I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson. I got burned last time. So I'm not going to be that guy again. And the kids get hip to it and they learn the game. 
So how many drops do you do a week? We or do at do least one. Or whatever? So one, okay. We do at least one a week. Some weeks it can be two, sometimes three. Lately it's been like two. So that means minimum 50 to 100, 52 to 100 drops a year. Yeah. And so this yeah. is one of all of those. Yeah, but this one, we classify them internally as like A drops, B drops, C drops, just by the breadth of the collection uh -huh. and how deep we're putting marketing energy behind it. And this is an A drop for us because we fleshed out. It's not just T-shirts and like a hat or something. It's, right. We actually made There's a bunch. Clothes, a bunch of like shit. cut and yeah. sew apparel that we you could on. You can buy the entire line. Mm-hmm. And be dressed for, you know, I don't know how often people have to switch out their clothes in, in the culture, but you can be clad for a couple of years in the amount of clothes That's that you the guys hope. made. Yeah, we make clothes that last, like, in 10 years from now, you can look at it and be like, that's not embarrassing to wear. Not even that yeah. aspect, just like the breadth of the amount of clothes oh, yeah. you made. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you there's know? so much it, stuff. It's like you could be dressed for fucking yeah. two years. It's yeah. kind of it's insane. We made Jay's jacket, uh, the yes. yellow outerwear piece, and we made it kind of like 90s technical outerwear. We made Bob's trench coat and uh, kind of streamlined it a bit, made it a little bit more like 2021, but it still looks exactly the same for the most part. Mm. Um Man, there's so much stuff. T-shirts. We made, your, a, we made a, your denim shorts. Yeah, that was fucking mind-bending. <laughs> um, is our denim shorts a thing still in the community? Ba baggy, oversized shorts are a thing. Denim shorts are not a thing, but every year people... You know what's cool right now about streetwear in general is mm. that... Or youth fashion is you can kind of wear anything and it can be a thing. Is that right? Like a brand can make trench coats and trench coats are a thing and... To that kid who buys that, into the next brand who's making denim shorts, the, all those kids are wearing denim shorts, and it's just like, oh, you're a trench coat guy, I'm a denim shorts guy, and, and so everything can kind of work. It's not like everyone like there are certain pieces that everyone is making at the same time. Right now, new era fifty nine fifty like baseball fitted yeah, caps, yeah. they're back. They come back like every ten years, so every brand has at least one of these in the collection. Right, but one brand might make like a silver kimono, and it's like okay. That's cool. Another brand makes like a hockey jersey. And it's just like, cool. Like, there's so, like, kids just dress, they look like they just, you know, blindly walked into a dark closet and, and dressed <laughs> themselves. Like, the way my parents would be like, did you dress yourselves in, in the dark? Right. <laughs> they look like that and it looks cool because it's like they didn't care, but there's actually care that was put into it. I feel like I missed my window. Like I, this was the era <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I should have been born in because yeah. my, my, my hot couture would have matched <laughs> at least a portion of the community yeah. of the time. It's so funny. Um, it is uh, crazy uh, wonderful being part of uh, your life story to the part point where you're, you know, I get a lot of people who, who are like, uh, Hey man, your stuff means a lot to me. Mm. Very rarely is somebody like your stuff means a lot to me. Can we make clothes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's breathing rare air. You're like, why? Thank you. The the <laughs> forked tongue shirt. Yes, the recreation of forked tongue was so beautiful that I was like, this is going into Clerks Three. So Elias, is it really? Yes. <gasps> oh my gosh! Elias wears that at one. It's literally written into the script. Like uh, Elias oh, wears the forked tongue my shirt. God. Um, so full circle, my friend, full circle. I, uh, the movie inspired the shirts, the shirts inspired the movie. 
Holy shit, man. And we get to display that it. That make me and very for a bunch emotional. Of cats, they're going to be like, where can you get that shirt? Yeah, I'm yeah. like, talk to that guy. They're, they're not in that business. <laughs> they're in the rare ability business. Um, it, it is, uh, it's a cool thing for me. I know for you, it's, uh, one of many hmm. stories that you get to tell. And for me, it's like, oh shit, like this was a thing to look forward to too yeah like particularly during the pandemic it was just yeah. like we don't know what the future looks like but we did know that the hundreds <laughs> line was coming yeah. and was coming on 420 so it was like well like even if i don't do anything else for a year i could be like hi i've, I've we did this but it, again it didn't even require me it was going to sell with or without me to a bunch of kids who may or may not know what it is and will probably, if they didn't know, start looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I've just, you know, fucking potentially gained like a new fan. That's but, the hope. Yeah. It's, it's, that's dreamy enough alone. But the fact that like there's a fucking thing that exists, like that I could, there's a sweatshirt that's got my name on it. Yeah. You know, I, I even I, I make a lot of crap. Even I don't put my own name on a sweatshirt. So, <laughs> It was nice because it was like, well, they're they're the braggy ones, yeah. not me. Like yeah. they chose to do it, um, but it's beautiful stuff, um, and uh, it, it's. I'm glad that that it happened before we made the movie because I get to fucking showcase it in the movie as Damn. well for good time. That's sure. fire! Thank you. Um, art begets art, and begets art, begets art, begets art. And that's kind of cool. Uh, whatever you got from watching the flicks growing up. Um, you now get to kind of influence the flicks going on. How awesome is that? It's really awesome. Yeah, it's it's the way I feel like when when Marvel like uh, re reference fucking Mallrats and Captain Marvel. Yeah, I was like, oh my god! Like they, I used to do movie dialogue. Now I'm in the movie dialogue. Yeah, like, this is <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. So I appreciate it. Um, I can't wait till it goes on sale. Um, and I can't wait to deal with all the angry people who are like i couldn't get it um we ordered a bunch for the stash for the secret stash oh, and cool. for jane silent bob on online because i guess there there's like a like a window where you guys were like we're making this amount or yeah. whatever the fuck and then after that it's done yeah so jordan was like we got to order it all like now yeah it's we're in a world of replenishment of like you sell it out you fucking refill it right and so, you know, we had to get our heads around like, no, once it's gone. It's gone. It's gone forever and yeah. stuff. So, like, whatever you want. Like, there's no such thing as your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Because yeah. it's like, this will go away. Yeah. There is no replenishing. So you can find it possibly on our sites. Um, uh, but, you know, good luck trying to get it over over at Bobby's site for heaven's sakes thank try, God try try please what yeah, if no one now means. turns out they're like well there's no shot they're like I'm glad you like this shit Bobby but like this is tired why the fuck how did they react to your Garfields they loved it so nobody was ever like fuck Garfield um first of all who's gonna say fuck Garfield <laughs> like Charlie Brown people <laughs> I don't know like peanuts hardcore Charles Schultz people it's <laughs> yeah. just like Oh, you Garfield. know what? It'd be Heathcliff people. That's true. There you go. Oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> brilliant fucking pull. My God, that was smart. Uh, no, everyone, Heathcliff they people. loved Garfield, but really because they know I love Garfield. That was another one of those. And so um, 
you know, I'm the, it happens to you too, but n- whenever someone sees anything Garfield, Garfield related, they tag me in a photo. Right. Right. They, they, the Garfield, Back to the Future, anything DeLorean related, they like tag me in a photo, send it. Did you see this? I'm like, yeah. Literally, like my friend just sent me. And, uh, th- did you see this video on TikTok? It's all the secrets of Back to the Future. Did you know it's Twin Pines Mall and then he hits the tree and it's Lone Pine Mall? I'm like, yes, they, I've, everyone knows that. I knew that it's, shit when I watched the yeah, movie. <laughs> and I'm just trying to be gracious about it. Like, thank you. But everybody knows that. It's it's clear in the movie. Um, I saw like, uh, what was it, last month? There's a video that went around social media, a little clip of... Um, Michelle Pfeiffer on the set of Batman Returns hmm. shooting one take the whip scene where she's in the department store and she just yeah. lops off the heads of a few mannequins and then she skips away and it was shot from a you know high angle so somebody videotaping it Maison scene just the whole fucking thing um, and then at the you know when she skipped away they cut and everybody on set applauded because they were like oh my god she fucking literally hit wow every head live in the take there ain't no special effects this is a one or and done captured the imagination of the world of social media i remember seeing that the first time in 1991 92 whenever they first aired it yeah on a special called the bat the cat and the penguin which robert urich hosted about the forthcoming batman returns movie yeah so I've now lived long enough that a bunch of kids could be like tweeting me this clip going like, did you see this? And I'm like, yeah, when it happened. Yeah. <laughs> like in the 90s, <laughs> I lived it, but I'm happy to relive it. Pretty amazing, right? That's what I thought before you were fucking born back when you were come. <laughs> you come and enjoy Lauren Hans hair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Would have changed my career, goddammit. <laughs> Certainly would have wound up on a shirt in our line. It would have. <laughs> uh, thank you for doing the line, man. It means the world. Thank you. But more thank importantly, you. thanks for coming over and doing the fucking show. Yeah. You can articulate the life of an artist so well. <laughs> and then beyond that, the life of a commercial artist. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. somebody who's like, look, I love making art. I also love selling my art Mm. i love it in the hands of people that love it that buy it that like i can build a business doing this and whatnot this is a fucking font of information Mm. and this is the diy generation aren't they yeah fucking these kids like every one of them like when i was a kid like you know like your parents the best job you could fucking think of was people like i'm gonna be a doctor i'm gonna go to law school and shit like that now it feels like this generation of kids, it's more entrepreneurial. Yeah. Where it's like, there's no fucking functionary job that's going to hit that can yeah. work. I mean, there's steady work, like in being a doctor, people are always sick and shit. Yeah. But like, the idea of like, uh, find that fucking sturdy job where, you know, you need it and, and fit into the f- fucking fabric. Don't go for art. Don't go for yeah. chasing dreams. Now it feels like a generation of kids raising, and I would imagine, I I certainly raised my kid this way, and I imagine you raise your boys this way. You figure out what you love to do, Mm. and then figure out how to get paid for it. Yeah. That's, yes. That's the fucking, used to be like the idea, Mm. the American dream of like fucking a house and a picket fence and family and fucking. Now to dream, not just the American dream, but fucking the worldwide dream, the lifetime dream is 
is that. It, one only thing better than that is, and that's something that you've become mm-hmm. and done that I recognize in myself. At a certain point, you realize the more powerful art project wasn't the thing you could create, but the life you could live. Yeah. Using the world as a canvas, your many stories that you tell, the many adventures that you go on, that's the art. Like the big picture fucking art. Like for me, at a certain point, I reached an age where I was like, Oh, like one day you're dead and they're going to look back at all this shit because you ain't going to be making it anymore. It stops. Like right now you're in the midst of making it. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. But at a certain point, it all, your output ends. There's yeah. an exclusivity to it of sorts. And, you know, it, it's going to be looked at as a complete whole. <laughs> like, so you start going like, well, wait, man, like hmm. that's a story. You know, I guess maybe 10 years after Mallrats when people were coming up to me and going like, oh, I fucking love that movie. Like, that was my religion and shit. And I'm like, where were you when we made that movie? Like, we fucking could have used your help at the box office. (laughs) Fuck, it flopped. And they're like, no, it can't be a flop. I have it on DVD. And you're like, what? That has Mm. nothing to do with whether a movie is a flop or not. But, like, you realize the currency of the... um, repeat watching the emotional connection with the material far outweighed your box office aspirations. Yeah. Like when we made it, it was like, Oh man, I hope we reach the widest possible audience. Yeah. Then it became, no, it hit this audience and they fucking love it like religion. And that audience elevated. It has elevated over the years. You're continuing to do it with the line that you're doing. Um, it sounds like you guys ride a similar wave. Same. That is generational. Mm-hmm. Do the. Uh, I'm gonna let you go because my God, I've had you for hours. But do the, <laughs> the, the ones that are like coming back into it 20 years or 18 mm-hmm. years later. Like I grew up on this, and now I'm fucking yeah. buying again. Do they put their kids on? To yes. It? Is that right? Yeah. Now being a old streetwear kid with parent rebellion issues. Yes. How does that work? Does like I don't. Does a kid go? I don't want to wear what you fucking wear. Or I'm sure there's still. I'm sure there's a lot of that. Right. But this generation of dads and their sons, it's it's so interesting to watch. The kids just don't seem to be as embarrassed about their parents the way that we were. Right. You go to the skate park and there's kids and their dads skating together and. You know, going to concerts like with like you go to Coachella, there's kids there with their parents. Yeah, and it's all parents good. are at the pariah they used to be. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there used to just be this moat, right? This divide between truly children and their parents, right? We were talking about this, I think, before we started recording, but my parents were always a hundred years old to me, mm-hmm. even when they were my age, right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea of my dad. Same here. I remember when he turned 40, he was going through a midlife crisis. He, he, he drove him in like a Toyota Supra and was just, I was just like, yo, this guy turned 40 today. He's about to die. Like, that's what I thought. <laughs> yes. I was like, that's it. He's over, you know? And like my mom dressed like she was like a grandma already at 40. <laughs> and then there's like my wife who's just like in her like Lululemon outfit and like working out and, sh- and shit. And like, you know, I'm going to like the skate park and like surfing with like 20 year old kids and stuff. And so I just don't think 
I'm I'm sure there are a lot of kids out there who are embarrassed of their parents. Right. But it's not I, built into the DNA the, yeah, anymore. Even like culturally, you don't see yeah. a lot of like movies, TV shows, yeah, media where it's just like you know, parents just don't understand. Yeah, it's like that. It's, parents just don't understand. It doesn't seem to be quite the issue anymore. That's interesting. So there's a chance that somebody who's into the hundreds at age forty or whatever the fuck passes it down to their kid, and their kid's like, "I like wearing this because yeah, this it's not just a chance. Wears. A lot we see it a lot." And it's not based on, like, my dad died. He used to wear this. <laughs> you know? And so now, A, I inherited it. But B, it emotionally means <laughs> something to me. It's really just the, like, oh, he, he wears that and that looks cool. Yeah. Or it's and, just uh, my dad grew up with the brand. He has a re- history with her relationship with it. And the stuff that my dad likes, you know, there is older stuff that's, like, the aesthetic of it is, like, for an older guy right. to wear. Um, just dress your stuff. Like, we make, like, actually nice, fashionable stuff. Um, it's a little bit more expensive, but then there is also segmentation in the brand where we also just make graphic t-shirts that a skater kid can wear. And that's what that kid wants, you know? And it's the same with a brand like Nike, like Mm. a dad can wear it and a kid can wear it. Right. The dad is going to wear like the dad shoe version of what a Nike is, you know, a comfortable thing to walk in or to exercise and run in. And the kid is going to wear what the, whatever the hyped up, Nike Dunk, basketball sneaker, an Air Force One, you know, that Travis Scott collaborated on. Like, that's the shoe that he wants. Whereas the dad's just like, why would you wear that? You can't even run in those, you know? Uh, But they're both wearing the same brand. We have that in our brand. We have stuff that's for both. I want to ask an ignorant question. Could a Nike survive on just doing sneak, you know, exclusive sneakers? They, or do they have to continue making mass-producing sneakers? They have to continue mass-producing shit like yeah. that. Is that right? Yeah. Even our brand. Yeah, because when they charge, like you know, when a when a huge sneaker drops, yeah, that's not where their money comes from. All that is just marketing noise. Is that right? The limited edition stuff and oh, it's sold so even out. If somebody's and, like, I saw, I fucking bought a pair for like, what? What are they? What's the top price they'll sell a sneaker? Oh, for? I don't, well, that they will sell yeah. it for. I don't, Probably like a few hundred bucks. And you know? the, so it goes up in value. Yeah. Afterwards. And then if it's a really rare, if. So they ain't in it chasing dollars. That's just to no. be like Nike's the hype. Exactly. The that's just all marketing, buzz, and energy. On, on your mom. That's, that's where the money is. The warehouse shoe sale, you know that store? Yeah, that's yeah. the that's the biggest Nike store in Southern California. You know, <laughs> they're every They're like emporiums that sell basically take down versions of the expensive shoe. Right. Like there's the Travis Scott Air Force One that everyone knows that's like purple and beige. And then they'll just make another purple and beige Air Force One that like kind of looks like that, but it's not. And this one is $40 and general release. So everyone has access to it. And they'll sell like a zillion of these. Is that And that shoe won't be frowned on? Well. The affordable version? Or will you be made yeah. fun of as a kid? Like, will they? When I was a kid, they'd be like, "You've got fucking skips." Yeah, like they'd we, make fun of your shoes or your sneakers rather by being like, "I'm sure skips." I'm sure some kids get made fun of, like you got, you know, fake Travis Scotts or whatever, <laughs> you know. But that's how it is with even with us, the noisy collabs and the drops that we do. Mm. They, you know, 50 hats, that only makes us, like, that CryptoPunks drop. Yeah, yeah. We made 50 hats. Like, that's, like, what, $2,000? Like, not, it's, it does nothing for us. Margin, it's not even worth yeah. the time that we put into it um, and working on it. It's, like, not worth it. It's just a marketing play for right. people, like, talk about the brand. And then they come to it and they're like, oh, I can't buy it. But while I'm here, 
I guess I'll buy a few t-shirts and buy a few jackets because all that stuff is available. Right. So we bring, it's like, that's the headliner that draws the crowd. People show up to the concert, but while they're there, they're staying for the openers and they're learning about all these new acts, right? They're like, what band is that? What a beautiful analogy. Right? And then they leave like going, oh, I found my new favorite band today. And I also got to see like the headliner, but you have to have the headliner and the, uh, and the openers. That's fucking smart. Um, wow, man. We learned a lot today, kids. <laughs> you, could, you should do this. Did you do podcasting? No. You're, I mean, in a world where you used to blog every day for the fucking I know. site, like, drop one of these a week, man. Like, I could should. listen to you talk forever. Yeah? And, yeah. Like, you're really interesting, and you can speak on a number of topics, not just like, hey, man, I know everything there is to know about <laughs> running a clothing business. Yeah. It was... Even though, generally speaking, we spoke about the clothing business, it was about art. Yeah. All the way through and through and whatnot. And all of it fucking fascinating. All of it, like, eloquently articulated, even to a guy who fancies himself somebody who speaks on the subject of fucking Mm. do what you love and whatnot. Um, yeah, fucking, you should do a podcast on the regular. I okay. guarantee you, man. Like, okay. <laughs> you like, and you, 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 you could probably you bang one off an hour once a week. Yeah. And you, you know, you talk about your shit, but at the same time, the same way you talk about everything else. Yeah. Which is part of the gestalt of your shit. Yeah. You should do a podcast. Okay. On a regular. Um, all right, man. I'm in. I'm in. Just done and done. Like fucking, I'm telling you, you'd be, you'd be a huge. Everyone has asked me to do. No, to. What's like, that? Think about everyone you know. Yeah. <clears throat> All the collaborations you do. Yeah. When you do them, you're like, hey man, can we record a podcast as well? Yeah. And then it's a plethora of like all these fucking interesting people. One more way to tell the story. One more avenue yeah. for the storytelling. Like base, basically, you could treat it like a sum up, like this, like after projects now about to drop and shit. yeah and allows all you my to thoughts do a on look it. yes and allows you to do a look back and be like it's pretty that's smart. how we got from cradle to fucking grave yeah. one more story bunch of those yeah another giant fucking story right like you're in the storytelling business yeah and that's the lowest hanging fruit like that requires you to just sit in front of a microphone and be like uh, i remember this and this and mm. this and just do the trace the threat and considering that you know, some collabs, like you said, with Roger Rabbit, take a lifetime. Yeah. Um, uh, some, you know, come together very quickly like ours. I would imagine most of them come together fairly quickly. That gives you constant fucking array of content. Because yeah. if you're doing a drop a week, yeah, there's a podcast so supporting to talk about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and again, it's not like a marketing driver in as much as like we need this to sell items. Like you're selling the items regardless. Right. But it's just one more way to extend the story and involve the audience. That's like, Oh my God, I fucking like in, in a world where a lot of us live on the metaverse. That's where a lot of yeah. podcast is. And, and again, you have no problem speaking like yeah. getting on a microphone and fucking just going, going, going. Like we smell our own. Like I, yeah. you know, I love, I went on Colbert and he like, did a whole fucking seven minute segment he didn't say anything next time i came back he was like the last time you were here like he's like i literally asked one question and you went on for 12 minutes and shit so i i always like when people wow. say that like when i'm on when i do radio shows people are like oh my god i love when you're on because you know you, you just talk so much exactly. i go get coffee yeah. i ask a question and you'll cover five fucking minutes and shit that's a gift the gift of gap yeah so you have the ability like here this is the highest compliment i think uh, you'll receive for your oration skills you're so good at speaking public speaking and speaking in general that you shut me up 
right. know, obviously on my shows, I'm like, oh, I love to hear myself talk. And I'd like to take over and tell the story. But I was like, oh, my God, this is interesting. Stay the fuck out of the way. And I got into the show rather than producing mm. the show. I was just like, Jesus, that's fucking smart. Oh, my God. And it's all relatable because I'm like, oh, my God, it's art. And I, I kind of quasi work in that world as well. Yeah. So i'm telling you that you got a voice and okay. people would love to hear it on the regular and in a world where you're constantly building the art project yeah that's just one more way to do it. anybody writes a book about like their life business and shit and anybody that you know i'm not saying everybody that does that should have a podcast but god you know how to talk so you should definitely have one because you've okay. got a lot to say yeah and a lot of interesting material that even if people are like fuck his stupid opinions you're talking about yeah. shit that they're like, well, wait a second. He's talking to this person. He's talking to this person. Or he's just talking about this part of his life or this part of his work or blah, blah, blah. There's always something interesting to fucking yeah. grab. Uh, you should look into it. Uh, in any event, thank you for being on this one. Thanks, Kevin. And God willing, was... if you do go forward and make a regular fucking podcast. I think sure, I am. I'll be in the DNA a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, telling the story of every project is just it's a it nice is. way to like – is everyone's always I first of all I love podcasts mm -hmm. like I you listen to them and shit. I listen to them all day long the moment you start making them it'll change not that you don't like them but you just won't have time because you'll be like why am I listening to, to someone else when, when I, I can, can do it my own exactly. but that's so I've always thought I'm like I could do it I could do it but I'm mm -hmm. uh, it takes a lot of time and does anyone really care to hear me all the time talking, you know, about, Think about it like again? That. It's not yeah. use going like my fucking stump of the week is this. Yeah. What's the matter with X, Y, and Z? It's literally about what you're doing. So like whatever the drop is, you're like, this is the history of the fucking drop. Yeah. Beginning from cradle to grave. And now we put it to bed and, you know, you could either do it before it happens to promote it or after it happens to postmortem it to be like, yeah. you know, this was the dream. This was the reality. This is what we wanted to do. This is how fast it sold out. Like, who fucking, who don't love that story? Because they're going to hear the backstory of why the art yeah. was created and then the success story of what happened with right. the art. And that inspires every fucking artist to be like, done and done. Like, I'm right in my beliefs. I want to create a thing and fucking see it all the way through. Because right. there's value in it. Like, not just fucking emotional value or the value of self-expression, but potentially even fucking monetary value. I can literally build a business mm. out of my art and what I fucking love. Yeah. Like, as artists, we're kind of remix artists. We, like, particularly, I maybe not all artists, and maybe get some get insulted by it, but, like, in my movies, I reference all this fucking shit that I've always loved over my life. In your art, same kind of fucking yeah. thing. That translates to everybody. Like, because everybody's like, yeah, man, I am not just one influence. I'm all these influences and stuff. I'm telling you, podcasting is something to add to the resume. Okay. It's always the ever expanding fucking resume that went from law school <laughs> to pop icon cultural figure man, that's that's tremendous um there it is kids heed well these lessons and build a fucking super fun empire of your own yeah oh god man uh that's it for smodcast this week man i'm kevin smith i'm bobby hundreds have a week This has been a Smodco Internet Production. Sip only at smodcast.com.